0: Hello Unshaken Saints, I'm Jared Halverson and welcome to a special storytime edition of Unshaken for this week. Now we've been doing stories about Jesus since the beginning of the year, but today we're gonna be doing stories from Jesus, namely his parables, the parables of the kingdom. Now Jesus is famous for the stories that he told and for good reason. They have stood the test of time. They have become classics of world literature uh, as well as of scripture. Because there is so much meaning Behind the messages that he's teaching, if a picture is worth a thousand words, then a parable is worth a thousand lessons. And peeling off layer after layer of meaning is the point of the parables that he's teaching. If we can grow up in God and receive a fullness of the Holy Ghost as we learn in D&C 109, then hopefully we can grow into a greater understanding of the things that the Lord is teaching here. If you think about. President Thomas S. Monson, and how famous he was for his storytelling. That There were times as a kid I just loved his talks because it was that. It was story time. As I got older, I realized, oh, he's teaching truth there. And what I thought was just a simple, sit on the front porch with Grandpa Monson, so, so to speak. No, this is a prophet of God explaining truth and teaching powerful principles. One of the things that made Abraham Lincoln so popular among people was his homespun wisdom. And rather than just bark out orders and say how things had to be, he would often spin a yarn. He would tell a tale and people would get the message. And part of the power of that is it allowed people to feel that they were discovering the truth for themselves instead of having it be told so directly and didactically. Uh, We're uh, more active participants once we realize, oh, I mean, these are Aesop's fables, right? Uh, What is the moral of the story? And here we have these stories. Hopefully, we've been doing that ever since we began studying scripture. Uh, Hopefully, every story that we read, we're looking for principles. But these are such intentionally taught stories that Jesus definitely has particular principles in mind. And he's hoping that we'll get them. So I hope we get them today. Uh, The ones that we'll be studying, there are so many parables scattered throughout the Gospels, and many of the more famous ones will have to wait for for coming weeks when we get the parable of the prodigal son or the good Samaritan, for example, the parable of the rich fool or the ten virgins. There's so many classic ones. Today's, in some ways, are less well-known because there's, in most of them, less of a plot. It's more of a picture that the Lord is trying to paint, and it's a picture of the Kingdom of God. We're going to be spending almost the, bulk of our, almost the entire time this week in Matthew chapter 13. We'll get some additional help from Mark 4 and from Luke 8, and then we'll finish off with some additional teachings that Jesus gives us in Luke chapter 13. But if you focus on Matthew 13, these are known as the parables of the Kingdom. And what the Lord is doing in establishing the Kingdom of God, remember we've seen this already, repent ye for the Kingdom of God is at hand, uh, that he's going about preaching the good news and showing the, the glad tidings of the kingdom. This is what it looks like to be part of the kingdom. Look at me. Look at what I'm doing. Well, the, today we're going we're to see him teaching parables to help illustrate what the kingdom of God really is all about. And if, if I were teaching this to a, a group of students, for example, I might ask them to start. Will you draw me a picture of the church? Draw me a picture of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, I bet many of them would draw oh, a, a building with a steeple. Oh, well, there's the church. Okay, maybe they would uh, think a little higher and draw maybe the outline of the Salt Lake Temple. Oh, that, that's, there's the church. Okay, good. But I don't want you to draw what the church looks like. I want you to draw what the church is like. What's it like to you? What blessings has it brought into your life? How, do you, how would you portray it? Uh, The kinds of experiences it gives you, and the answers that it offers, and the experiences that you've had. What does it mean to you? Yeah, draw that. And so what Jesus is going to give us today in these parables of the kingdom, and and it's just rapid fire succession. Here's one, and here's another, and here's another. is painting these pictures, giving us these brief depictions of what the kingdom of God really is all about. We met the apostles and as the apostles are being brought into the kingdom and then being sent out to build the kingdom, they better understand what they're in for. And you and I, as we put our hand to the plow, don't look back. Instead, look forward to these depictions that the Lord is giving us of the, uh, the nature of the work that we're involved in. Now, the, the brief list of what we're going to see here, uh, we're going to start with the parable of the sower, which is an absolute masterpiece. It's one that, it's one of the few parables that's found in Matthew and Mark and Luke and in which Jesus not only gives the parable, but also gives his interpretation of it. And usually he doesn't do that. Usually he just tells the story and then kind of walks away with us wondering, what am I supposed to get out of that? This one, he wants to be crystal clear. Okay? So we're going to spend the, the first half, really, of our lesson just really trying to pick apart and put together the parable of the sower. From there, they start getting shorter and more straightforward, but then he'll teach the wheat, the parable of the wheat and tares. There's another one that we see multiple accounts, and that he gives both uh, parable as well as explanation. After the parable of the wheat and the tares, he will then give us the parable of the mustard seed, followed by the parable of the leaven. There's a little brief interlude there then, as he t- explains a little bit of why he's teaching this way. And then we'll see a pair of parables uh, that has a lot in common. The parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great price. We'll then see the parable of the gospel net. Uh, this would have been very appropriate for a bunch of fishermen that are now apostles. After which, I don't even know if we can call this a parable, but it's, it's one of the final things that we'll see in Matthew 13 today. And it's a quick insight into a householder. We could call it the parable of the householder if you'd like. And just to throw it in, uh, there will be one other parable that we'll talk about called the, the parable of the seed growing in secret. That one is not in Matthew. Now, there's actually also another parable of the barren tree that we'll see from the book of Luke at the end of this week's material. But I want to include the parable of the seed growing in secret along with these parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13. Parable of the seed growing in secret is the only parable that is only found in Mark. And Mark talks about this. I would have no idea why Matthew and Luke didn't choose to include it as well. well. We'll tack it on to the parable of the sower at the end of this first half. Because it's such a powerful insight to see how things grow. Since that's what the sower is hoping for all along. So what, like I said, what we're going to see as Jesus is unrolling these parable after parable after parable is kind of shining a light or moving the camera around the kingdom of God so that we can look at it from different angles and understand what it is, and and understand it's history, or in Jesus' case, it's prophecy, history in reverse, uh, what will come in coming days. So buckle up and uh, put your symbolism glasses on. This is something that we need every time we go to the temple. Understanding that the story that is being taught in terms of creation and fall is meant to prepare us for the atonement. It's meant to help us see ourselves in the story and understand our journey through the plan of salvation. Yeah, with those symbolism glasses on, everything we see in the temple has symbol written all over it. And so we are trying to understand the meaning behind what we say and what we do and what we wear and, and everything that we're involved in. And so with a similar set of symbolic glasses, uh, let's go and, and understand these parables. Just really quickly also, a parable itself comes from a Greek word meaning to place beside and the power of these is what the Lord is placing beside one another is a temporal or tangible reality to place beside a spiritual one. If you're having a hard time perceiving these invisible truths, then let me paint you a visible picture. And by placing them beside one another, hopefully you're understanding the analogies that I'm trying to teach. So, with that, Matthew chapter 13, verse 1. The same day, and if you go back to the end of Matthew 12, it's the same day he talked about his true brothers and sisters being those who did the Father's will. It's the same day he taught about insiders being judged and condemned by outsiders. It's been a busy day, and again, he's not done yet. But that same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside. And great multitudes were gathered together unto him. Luke says that they came to him out of every city which always seems to be the case for him, right? Massive crowds, mixed multitudes, people who just are clamoring to hear any word that comes from the Savior's mouth. I hope that includes us. Well, for that reason, because it's so packed, he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. So once again, Jesus taking advantage of the Sea of Galilee as a natural amphitheater, wanting to teach as many people as possible. And again, if this is a mixed multitude... No wonder he's going to begin this set of kingdom parables describing a mixed sort of soil. Verse 3, he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And again, this is where the parable of the sower begins. But notice that he spake many things unto them in parables. And please do not be fooled by their simplicity. It's amazing how short and straightforward these are. If you're used to the Book of Mormon and its allegory of the olive tree, it's the longest chapter in the whole book. Because that is a story with so many details and such a long history as it's prophesying of the scattering and gathering of Israel throughout thousands of years worth of world history. Uh, These ones are much shorter and more straightforward. But do, like I said, don't look past them and don't think, oh yeah, I got the storyline down. The storyline is just the beginning. And so if we can come to understand what it is that the Lord is trying to explain here. In fact, if you notice how Mark begins this story in his chapter, in his version. This is Mark 4 verse 2. And he taught them many things by parables. Same thing. And said unto them in his doctrine. Did you catch that? As far as Mark is concerned, the synonym for parable is doctrine. Oh, I'm teaching. This is not story time with Jesus. This is Christ teaching the doctrines of Christ. So pay close attention. Verse 4 is where, in, back in Matthew 13, is where this parable begins. Well, technically, in verse 3, the, the sower went forth to sow. But here's where the plot thickens. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some an hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. And that's it. That's the whole story. It's just under one hundred words. That's all. And yet, (laughs) lessons behind practically every one. Part of our challenge then will be to tease out meaning from those hundred words. And the Lord seems to be inviting us to do just that with his next phrase. As soon as he's done with the story, he says in verse 9, Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Which seems to be the Lord's way of saying, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. How much are you getting out of this? Do you have ears to hear? And not just listen to the story. Are you hearing the message that is behind it? If you remember, the, there's an amazing passage in Alma chapter 12, where Alma says that those with soft hearts will receive the greater portion of the word. In fact, they'll learn so much line upon line that eventually they will know the, the mysteries of God in full. Whereas those that approach the word of God with a hard heart will receive the lesser portion of the word until it is taken away, little by little, until they know nothing concerning the mysteries of God. And Alma even parallels that to the chains of hell. I mean, if you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free, then no wonder chains are, are suggested by ignorance. That I, I, There's no way out, at least not one that I know of. Now, I've often used that, that passage in Alma 12 when I've begun firesides, for example, and warned the hearers, I'm about to give two firesides simultaneously. And they're thinking, well, wow, this is going to be amazing. was he going to talk about his mouth and his nose at the same time? How is this going to work? And then I share that passage and say, no, it'll be the same words out of my mouth, but there will be different words coming into your ears. If you have ears to hear, that is. Because I will be giving a greater portion and a lesser portion message at the same time. And you get to pick which one you'll hear. I mean, in fact, the parable of the sower is the perfect example of that because it's the same message being delivered. It's the same seed that is falling in all these different types of soils. The question is what type of soil is it? And what effect will the soil have upon the seed? Are you listening? Do you want the greater portion? I imagine that there were probably some people after Jesus shared those, that hundred word story that were standing there on the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee looking, listening to Jesus on the boat thinking, I thought I, I could have sworn that guy was a carpenter some kind of artisan why is he talking about farming? I bet others thought That's some that's some good lesson on farming. In fact, I'm a farmer. This guy knows his stuff. I better go back home and check where my seeds have been falling. And they took it all literally. And that's all they got. Now, some perhaps it wasn't so much taking it literally, but they thought it was a story and nothing but and thought, oh, that was a great story. In fact, when my when it's bedtime tonight, I know exactly the bedtime story I'll tell my kids. With, with the birds swooping down, I can act that one out, right? We, we're planning, well, I'll, I'll let my kids act it out maybe in, in, in uh, family hall evening. And is that all it is, a story? Or with that wink, wink, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, do you have ears to hear? Last year in the Old Testament, when we met the boy Samuel, and he kept hearing the voice of God speak to him there in the tabernacle, and he kept saying, here am I. I- I'm here. And finally, with the su- at the suggestion of Eli, he said, Tell, when the voice comes, say to the voice, speak, for thy servant heareth. Now this only works in English, because the words sound the same. But it's one thing to say, here am I. And another thing to say, speak, for thy servant heareth. It's not enough to be here. We must here. So glad you're here in the, uh, the Galilee glad you're here to listen. but if you're just here listening instead of listening to truly hear, then this will merely be some story. instead of potentially a life-changing lesson, I imagine that there were some that had ears to hear that walked home a little slower and as they were passing along the wayside, <laughs> Soil that had been tramped down because of so many passers-by. As they walked by and saw some stones on the side or saw thorns growing. As they they passed well-planted fields. I imagine that they remembered what Jesus had just told them. And started thinking about the depth of their own soul. And how the soul related to those soils. That, that was his purpose there. And by the way, if people are passing by the objects of his object lesson on the way home, if they're there on the shore and Jesus can point to different places, that's the genius of Jesus using such everyday objects to place beside. The beauty of an everyday object is the lesson that, it was, put, that was placed beside it will be an everyday lesson as well. I sometimes warned seminary teachers when I trained them in the South, be, beware of having making objects le- lessons that are too epic. Uh, yes, they'll be memorable, but I'm not sure if the lesson will be. And sadly, I don't know how often the students will remember that epic lesson that you taught, because won't, they won't see that out of the ordinary thing very frequently. Whereas if you can connect something to the everyday, then there will be everyday reminders. I can't think of a better one than soil types for an agrarian society as they're walking around and being reminded about every detail. Now keep going and you'll get to the, to the disciples, to actually to the apostles that are wondering about this. Verse 10, the disciples came and said unto him, why speakest thou unto them in parables? Why, why, why story time with Jesus? Why aren't you being more straightforward and explaining what the kingdom of heaven really is all about? Uh, you've been teaching us powerful things, uh, the instructions you gave us uh, to prepare us for our missions, for example. But why speak to them in parables? In the Luke version, they asked, what might this parable be? So it's not so much a matter of you, you, what, explain your methodology, but actually explain your message. What are we supposed to get from that? Yeah, the Mark version adds another detail to it, but the JST of the Mark version is even better. This is JST Mark chapter 4, verse 9. When he was alone with the twelve, and they that believed in him, they that were about him asked of him the parable. And that's an important detail. He's behind closed doors now. He's alone with them. And that's really when the explanation is going to come. I, which actually makes me wonder, Why wait till then? If I'm thinking more negatively, perhaps this is the apostles not wanting to look ignorant in front of the multitudes. Uh, If they're trying to spread the word and and add their voices to the saviors, if they're the the natural megaphones that are extending his voice beyond... Can you picture the people looking quizzically like, what does that mean? And the Apostle's like, "Oh, you don't get it? Come on now, you should understand this. Whereas on the inside, they're like, I don't know, uh, I better check my, my soil condition back home on the farm. Is it, be, is it out of, of embarrassment? I, I say this to my students all the time, there's no dumb questions. And if you have the courage to raise your hand and ask or admit, I don't get that. Can you explain that a little bit better? guarantee there will be other people in the classroom that are relieved that you had the courage to ask the question they didn't have the courage to ask, but they were wondering. Okay, So, are, is this a, a hesitance on their part to admit their ignorance? Maybe. There's human nature there. Then again, is it their realization there's a purpose behind the Lord's teaching style? And perhaps with these layers of meaning He wants them to understand a certain layer. And he wants us to dig a little deeper and peel a little further and have a better understanding of what he's really getting at here than other people. Sure enough, that is exactly what's on Jesus' mind for them. So in terms of this, is there a sacred significance here that's just meant for us instead of for everyone? Is this going to be a gradual growth into understanding well, that's what the Lord explains in verse 11. He answered and said unto them, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it is not given. The way Mark puts it, but unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables. I can explain things straightforwardly to you. To others, how oh, they need story time. Now, is it because that they're Oh, they're milk before meat, and to have a a milk-based story that hopefully they can grow into and start developing some some stronger teeth, so they can chew into the meaty doctrines behind those those stories. Definitely a possibility. There may also be a matter of kindness on the part of Christ of allowing people to gradually grow into accountability. If all you get is a story, then good. I hope you remember the story. But as insight begins to come, accountability will come with it. Where much is given, much is required. And you apostles, oh yeah, I'm requiring a lot. And so I'm going to give a lot by way of straightforward explanation. These others, let's be patient. And when the light bulb comes on, even if it takes a while, if it's, if it's a dimmer switch uh, and it's only slowly intensifying, then be that as it may. That's, that's okay. I'm patient. Now he goes on here and he says, For whosoever hath, to him shall be given. The JST is even better here. Whosoever receiveth, to him shall be given. It's not just a matter of I have it, it's that I have an open heart and I want to receive more. I'm a good receiver. I'm trying to get open. I'm trying to get away from the defenders here. I'm coming back for the ball and I'll do something with it. I am a receiver of the word. And if I've shown that, then the Lord, as the ultimate quarterback, wants to give us as many looks as he can. Okay? So if you receive, to him shall be given and he shall have more abundance Here's that greater portion of the word that Alma was getting at. On the other hand, whosoever hath not, and the JST changes that somewhat also, whosoever continueth not to receive. So maybe you were a good receiver for a time, but then thought you had enough. Like, you know, I'm good, I'm good, I'm full. I've understood it all. I don't need to go back and read my scriptures more. I don't need to go back to the temple. I understand things. Oh, careful. If that's your approach, if you continue not to receive, then what's the result from him shall be taken away even that he hath. And that's the lesser portion of the word Alma was getting at. You see what the Lord is doing here in his teaching is he's thinking about students more than subject. He wants his pupils to become true disciples and he wants to watch. What will you do with my word? You see this beautifully in the first chapter of the Book of Mormon, where it's tag team between Lehi and the Lord. And the Lord gives him something and just kind of waits. Will you continue to receive? And Lehi always does. So God always keeps teaching. Sadly, it's usually the student that rings the bell and says, Class is over. And the Lord sadly has to walk out of the classroom also thinking, But I was just warming up. Honestly, as a teacher myself, I feel that as I look at students yeah, when they're there live. Sorry, <laughs> you that are listening in or watching. But in, in a live classroom, you can get the feedback. And if I see that students are unengaged, I'm probably not going to be casting pearls before swine. Whereas when they are taking notes, when they are, have that look of intensity, oh, I want to give them the good stuff because I know they will treasure it up. This is Moses turning aside to see the burning bush. And the Lord then speaks instead of just giving off a godly glow. That's the power of Scripture. And so, you apostles, will you continue to receive? If so, then I'll continue to teach. And stories that you've heard a thousand times will keep giving off lessons Again, think about the temple endowment. And what is an endowment? It's a gift that keeps on giving. A financial gift to a university, for example, that you live off the interest because it's the gift keeps giving more gifts. And that's the lessons of the Lord. It's amazing what he's doing here. So you want the greater portion? Then accept the lesser portion and then allow it to grow within you. Keep on learning. One of my favorite passages that illustrates this, or at least reconfirms the truth of this, is in 2 Nephi chapter 28, verse 30. Listen to Nephi's promise. For behold, thus saith the Lord God. So it's not Nephi's promise, it's God's. I will give unto the children of men, line upon line. Precept upon precept. Here a little, there a little. You get this sense of a gradual growth? He goes on. Blessed are those who hearken unto my precepts. The first one, that is. Because then they're going to get another precept to boot. If you'll hearken unto my precepts and lend an ear unto my counsel. right? Those that have ears to hear, let them hear. For they shall learn wisdom. The intelligence will grow into wisdom. Information will grow into application. They will learn wisdom. For unto him that receiveth, I will give more. There's that same idea that we're seeing from Jesus. On the other hand, from them that shall say, ah, we have enough. See that? They're not continuing to receive. I'm good. I've maxed out. I've heard this before. Well, from them shall be taken away even that which they have. And with that, we're back to Alma's insight. That as students of the Lord, we are always either gravitating deeper into class or further out the door. That we are going towards the greater portion or the lesser portion. To know everything or to know nothing choice is ours now the Lord continues this explanation of his methodology to the apostles in Matthew 13:13. he says therefore speak I to them in parables because they seeing see not and hearing they hear not neither do they understand they've got eyes they're just not open they've got ears but not ears to hear And so we're going to give them a a gradual growth opportunity and a growth in accountability as well. In fact, Jesus is just quoting good scripture here. He says, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah." So here's Isaiah he's going to quote, chapter 6, which saith, by hearing ye shall hear and shall not understand, because the ears aren't really ready for it, and seeing ye shall see and shall not perceive. This is going to be blind leading the blind. For this people's heart is waxed gross. Now, sadly, in our day, gross just means like disgusting, like, ooh, your heart, grody. No, gross in this time period means thick or fat. So picture the heart of someone that has not been taking good care of himself. And so the heart, the the, picture, the, the thickened arteries, the hardened heart. The, the callousness, the unfeeling nature of some people. That's a gross heart. That's a thick heart, a fat heart. It's uh, buried so deep that the Lord can't reach his finger in to write upon the fleshy tables. Okay? That's the first problem. The People's heart is waxed gross. Second problem. Their ears are dull of hearing. And is it dull because they're, they've never been sharpened? They're just kind of going through the motions and, and semi-listening in? Or is it dull because, well, it started sharp. I just haven't been re-sharpening it. And I've been doing the same task, reading the same stories, going to the same temple sessions. And, and it's grown dull with time. Well, either way, I'm not hearing very well. And then the third problem, their eyes, they have closed. It's this is willful blindness when it didn't have to be that way. And what are they trying to avoid? Tragically, the last phrase here that he quotes from Isaiah Lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and should understand with their heart and should be converted and I should heal them. I mean, heaven forbid that that happen, that they actually be converted, that they soften their heart enough to understand, that they peek an eye open and actually see the glories of God that the Lord has laid before them, that they start to pay a little more attention. Give an ear. Or even just lend, lend me your ears, as Shakespeare would say. Even if it's on loan, if something will happen, then something might sneak past the century and, and touch you so that you can be converted and be healed. You see, this is what the Lord is after every time he teaches us. He wants your eye and your ear and your heart He wants you to see real perception, spiritual sight, eternal perspective. He wants you to hear, let it in so that it resonates with you and your heart. Yes, please soften it. Be vulnerable enough that it can be open to a deeper understanding of not just what the words mean, but what I intend by those words in your life. That's what I'm hoping for. And the beauty of what the Lord is doing here with these stories is that stories are a way to, well, like I said, to get past the century. Reason is the century sometimes. And and our rationality puts up these walls and, and they're guarding them, these sentinels. Oh, oh no, I'm not trying to teach you anything. I'm not telling you you're doing anything wrong. I mean, I'm certainly not crying repentance. Oh, far be it. I'm just telling you a story and the beauty of that is stories can sneak in truth and get past our natural defenses that's what the Lord is, is trying here, he's hoping for but to the apostles behind closed doors that hopefully have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to understand, if this isn't your problem then listen up, verse 16 and 17 but blessed are your eyes for they see, and your ears for they hear. I actually wondered if this was blessed because they see, or blessed so that they see. It's like, you guys are on top of things. You get it. So, wow, what a blessing. Or you guys need to see. And that's why I've blessed you with a deeper understanding of this. In some ways, it's probably both. It's synergistic learning. It's the Lord helping us and giving us clues, but also us exercising faith and thinking hard and, and pondering and, until the eyes of our understanding are, are, are more opened. Is this the kind of blessedness we seek? And then the Lord explains just what level of blessedness this is. For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. Everyone else has been chomping at the bit. Past prophets, holy men and women of God that have been waiting in anxious anticipation for the dispensation of the meridian of times. People that have been looking forward to the coming of Christ. Well, Christ has come. I'm here. I'm with you. Remember we talked about this with John the Baptist? Why is he greater than any other prophet? As, as far as Jesus is concerned? Well, because it's not just prophecy. It's, it's the final pre- preparation for the coming of Christ. It's go time. And to think of these righteous men and women, to think of these many prophets, that oh, if only I could have lived to see that day. Remember this was Alma that lived just a little too early before the first coming of Christ. When he says, would to God that it might be in my day. Okay, so be it sooner or later, in it I shall rejoice. But man, if I could be there. If that's the case of those that lived in the meridian of times, imagine those that live in the dispensation of the fullness of times. And what what an honor that these are our days. Days never to be forgotten, as Oliver Cowdery said. Days to prepare for the second coming of Christ. Days to gather Israel on both sides of the veil. Days to do all the work so we can present to God his eternal family. Do, Do we understand the kingdom of God? He's about to explain the parable of the sower, but do we know what we're doing and the time period that we get to, to sow the seed? Oh, I hope you get a sense of the jealousy of prior prophets that, that didn't get to see what we are seeing, and sadly perhaps taking for granted all around us. So to us, to them, verse 18, hear ye therefore the parable of the sower it is time for revelation to meet explanation. And who better to give it to us than the initial revealer himself. Again, that's the power of parables. It's the the significance of symbolism. It's the teaching approach in the temple. The Lord reveals, let the Lord explain as well. Let him turn to him for a greater understanding. And here he's going to give it to them. Verse 19, he begins, When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom. And that's what this seed has symbolized all along. In fact, Mark clarifies this from the start. In his version, it's the sower soweth the word. Luke is equally didactic. The seed is the word of God. And in fact, in the Luke version, at the very beginning of it, it's even a little clearer. Instead of Matthew's just, a sower went forth to sow. In Luke's version, a sower went out to sow his seed. So this is personal pronoun here. It's not just any old seed. It's the sower's seed. And if the Lord is the sower, if the king is the one planting the word of the kingdom, it's his word that we need to be prepared to hear. Well, if, when anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside. You getting this, Peter, James, John, all all the rest? But he that received the seed into stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it, yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth for a while, for when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. You getting these two soil types down? Well, two down, two to go. He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word, and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becometh unfruitful. But, fourth type, he that receives seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it. The JST adds, and endureth. And if that's happening, hearing, understanding, enduring, then what's the result? Which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth, some an hundredfold, some sixty, some 30. And that's it. The explanation, if you count them up, totals just over a hundred and fifty words, which to me is actually pretty revealing that if the story itself took less than a hundred, but the explanation took over a hundred and fifty, always assume that explaining things will require more thought, more effort, more time, more space, than just hearing the story to begin with. I mean, no wonder these lessons are so long. Okay? It would have been just faster, just read the scriptures to us and leave it at that. Oh no, we need to understand. Okay? Understand, receive, uh, endure, we need to do all of that. So get used to it, it's going to take a while. Now, let's go for our own sake, a little more slowly, and take on each soil one by one. Because if we are fellow sowers, if we are under-sowers, can we, can we use that title? The Lord is sending us out as disciples. I mean, hopefully we're the ones that he invites into the house and explains things. Blessed are your eyes, your ears, you see, you hear. Are you getting this? Okay. Well, to make sure that we get it, let's go soil by soil. And let's ask Matthew and Mark and Luke for as many details as each one remembers. This parable is one of the best places to practice a skill set we need to develop as we become good students of the New Testament. Good students of the Gospels, I should say. Because the three synoptic Gospels, and especially the final week of the Savior's life, John will chime in on everything there too. And so we'll have the full four versions of everything. But this is a chance where we really need to get a little more... uh, Need a little more dexterity with our fingers to be able to flip back and forth between Matthew, Mark, and Luke to bring in every detail we possibly can. For me, charts help with that. So if you're listening to this on the audio-only podcast version, you might want to jump over to YouTube and and be able to watch this because here's some, some charts to see each of these soil types side by side. So we'll see the wayside, stony ground, thorny ground, and good ground. If we want to start making this more personal, we could describe this as the hardened heart versus the shallow heart versus the worldly heart versus the fruitful heart. The type of soil is our soul, and it's our heart that hopefully is not so gross, so fat, so thick, so calloused that we can't receive anything. But that's the kind of, that's what the Lord is trying to get us ready for, okay? The the preparation of the heart. Now, the next row on our chart, what could we add? What are we seeing here? Look past the soil and look at what the seed is, is becoming. And what kind of plant will I behold there? Now, sadly, on the wayside, there's no plant to see. It got trampled down, not, never germinated. The, the birds of the air came to swoop down and, and gobbled them up. So no plant in the wayside. On the stony ground, there is a plant, or I should say there was a plant. I mean, there had been some good growth. But all I'm seeing now is a withered plant. It's evidence of life past, but no life present. The thorny ground, meanwhile, what do I see? There's a living plant. That's the good news. It survived. Unfortunately, it's not bearing fruit. Okay, why, why, is, why that? Hmm. Okay, so something went wrong there. It's still occupying the ground. It's still growing. It's just not producing. For that, you have to turn to the good ground where you will see plants proliferating. You will see fruit multiplying, 30, 60, 100. One other thing to add here that I think is fascinating, if you were to cross-pollinate, since we're talking about growing seeds, uh, if you can cross-pollinate the parable of the sower with Lehi's dream, because there are four types of soil in the sower, four types of people in the dream, and they match up perfectly the wayside soil those are the be- the people it's actually the fourth group we almost miss uh, lose sight of them in lehi's dream they're the ones that that never get on the path they never come to the tree they simply wander off in strange roads and disappear from view most likely some of them maybe made it to the great and spacious building that's what they were probably aiming for but we don't they're just gone okay there's nothing there sound like wayside no plant What's the stony ground in Lehi's dream? Well, if the plant grew up, but then withered and died, think about those who made it to the tree, partook of the fruit, but then feeling ashamed because of the mockery from the great and spacious building, they fell away. Sound like the the evidence of a dead plant that once was? Who's the thorny ground then? These are those that are living but unfruitful. The worldliness that's choking out the Word of God sound like the great and spacious building itself, those that are pointing the finger at at others. And then finally the good ground. Well, obviously those are the people like Lehi, like Sariah, like Nephi and Sam. But sadly, unlike Laman and Lemuel, these are they who came to the tree, partook of the fruit, and stayed there. In fact, most likely started like Lehi. Inviting others to come to the tree as well. Now, are we we seeing this across the spectrum? Do we have this chart in mind? That these four different types of soils and types of souls. As we are trying to make our way back to God. This is a parable of the kingdom after all. Now, like I said, what we're going to do is we're going to ask Matthew, Mark and Luke for every detail they can give us about these three different soil types and we'll take them one by one. First, wayside and for this we'll need Matthew 13's help Mark 4's help and Luke 8's help and prepare yourself for a bunch of charts as we go through each each soil type one by one now with the wayside we, we the first thing we learn is that the fowls came and devoured those seeds so no wonder there's no plant there there's no chance for it to grow And in some ways, the sooner the better. We'll see that in the interpretation. In the Mark version, same as the Matthew, it's still the fowls coming to devour it. But in the Luke version, one added detail. These seeds were trodden down and the fowls of the air devoured it. So in this case, again, wayside is like the sidewalk. It's the the well-worn path. But because so many people have been walking across it for so long, no wonder the soil is so packed down that it's become this crust, this this crusty layer that nothing can penetrate. You you I, I see chances to fall there. Yeah, it's going to get trampled down. And as soon as there's a break in the passers-by, then the birds are going to swoop down and have some breakfast. Okay, no wonder nothing is growing. Now, from each of the three gospel writers' uh, interpretations that Jesus gave, notice the details here. Matthew's interpretation. The the ones on the wayside are those that heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not. Then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. So it sounds like Satan is the bird here. Yes, he is foul in more ways than one. Uh, A vulture, some kind of scavenger. Here he is swooping down as quickly as possible. In fact, that's one of the things that Mark adds. When they have heard, Satan cometh immediately and taketh away the word that was sown in their hearts. Uh, no, we, the longer we wait, the more chance there... I mean, it's amazing that seeds seem to grow in the most unlikely of places. That when you see grass poking up between the cracks in the pavement, that's impressive. Well, Satan knows that. He knows that the, the seed of God's word is so quick, so powerful, that it will sprout Any chance you give it. And so no wonder that speed is of the essence here for Satan. Send those birds swooping in. And then the Luke version gives us one more detail to help us see why Satan is so highly motivated. Why this bird is swooping in so quickly. Why he's so fast to trample anything down the moment that it even has the potential of hitting soil. Then cometh the devil and taketh away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. I mean, we can't let that happen, can we? Heaven forbid that anyone be saved. And if it's salvation that I'm worried about, then let's back up. It's believing that leads to salvation. Then don't let them believe. We'll back up again. How do they believe? Well, they understand. Then don't let them understand. And what precedes understanding? Hearing. Then don't let them hear. Remember what Jesus is saying. Those that have ears to hear, let them hear. And Satan's like, no, 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 don't let them hear. If there was a way I could create a diversion or distract everyone and, and clear off the, the shore of Galilee, let Jesus sit on his boat by himself. I do. Darn it. Another lesson? I've got some work to do. So send in the legion of birds to start scooping up every scattered seed that we can find. If nothing germinates, then we have no eventual salvation to worry about. Of all the types of soils, Satan prefers this one, because there's nothing to worry about. If you are sidewalk, fine. Let's, not make, let's make sure there's no plant growth, ever. But what if some seeds make it through? What if the seed falls and it's not on the trampled down wayside, but it's in soil? Well, fine, let's just pray. This is Satan praying? Odd. Let's pray that it's stony ground. Because notice the details here. From the Matthew version, when the seed falls upon stony places where they had not much earth, forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. That's the growth cycle, Okay, the, good, the first half, the good news. Mark adds to it, they had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. So same idea, just different words. Forthwith for Matthew, immediately for Mark, same idea. Luke's slightly different. It's not just falling upon stony places. It says, some fell upon a rock. <laughs> now, not just, so it's not just going to get in through the cracks. It fell onto a rock itself. Yeah, good luck growing at all. This is, this is, you might as well be on the wayside. The wise man may have built his house upon the rock, but the wise farmer never would plant his seeds there. Okay, we need better soil than that. But there, even on the rock, it did spring up. Shocking, miraculous. Now, if that's the growth cycle, what's the death cycle? Second half of each of these accounts, Matthew's, When the sun was up, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. And of course they're going to have no root. There's no deepness of earth. There's no way for it to to get any deeper down. I mean, it penetrated the top layer. Okay, So it's beyond the wayside. But it's not getting very far. In the Mark Version, same idea. When the sun was up, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. In the Luke Version, it gives us a clue as to why that root was so necessary. It says, as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. Now, do we understand why roots are so important? Especially in the typically dry, arid soil of the Holy Land? To think about the sun beating down upon these poor plants that, that are just beginning to grow. They, they, and there's some good potential here. They sprang up. The problem is, with the sun beating down, if you don't have a water source, then of course you'll wither. Of course you'll be scorched. And where will that water be? If, even if it rains on stony ground, where does the rain go? It hits the top layer, it can't penetrate this, the, the stones, and so it's just runoff. Here's flash flooding for you. And to think about what's happening here on stony ground, that, yeah, maybe you got a no wonder it sprang up. The, it, the, the rain fell, and immediately it soaks in that top layer, and it's good to go until the rain stops. And there's no moisture at that shallow depth. You're going to have to dig deeper if you really want to find this well of living water springing up within you. Like Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well you got to dig deep you got to send down tap roots because who knows how far down the water table is That's the real challenge here. If you see what Jesus says by way of explanation, notice his description here because what what I love about this is the 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 enemy to the stony ground is the sun but you farmers out here, out there probably know this better than I, I, I could have sworn that sunlight was good for plants. It's some kind of photosynthesis thing I learned in high school biology. Yeah, sunlight is really important. But so is water. In fact, one without the other, that's where the real damage comes. You have to have both to survive. And in fact, if you have sufficient water, then bring on the sun. I'll have incredible growth and better yet, sustainable growth. Keep that in mind as we turn to the interpretation because the sun can be a good thing as long as we are tapped in, tap root to a source of living water that will allow us to metabolize the kind of sunlight that's coming in. Notice Matthew's account of the explanation. The, this stony ground soul are the ones that hear the word, and anon with joy receiveth it. Anon means quickly, immediately. In fact, that's the word Mark uses. When they have heard the word immediately, they receive it with gladness. So we've got the joy, we've got the gladness. Luke, we're back to joy. When they hear, they receive the word with joy. So good news. If we stopped there, awesome. In fact, maybe now you can't even tell up to this point. Is this, is this plant going to stay or go? Will it thrive or will it wither? because all indicate I can't tell what's down beneath but this top layer of soil did I strike rock? when I lived in Tennessee we first moved there and my kids wanted a, a trampoline and I wanted to give them one but I wanted it to be safe so I'd seen this in Utah these in ground trampolines where the trampoline is on the same layer as or the same level as the as the grass it's great it's not as far to fall so I grabbed my trusty pickaxe and shovel and went out to the back corner of the, of the backyard and started to dig. Well, it wasn't long before my neighbors came over and said, uh, Y'all aren't from here, are you? <laughs> like, why? How do you know? I said, because uh, nobody digs in Tennessee. Uh, you ever heard the, the, one of the state songs, Rocky Top? Because that's what it is. It's just Rocky Top, Tennessee. And go walk, drive through the free, down the freeway. And you'll see wherever they had to cut through the hillside to to make the you know highway construction. John the Baptist would, have, would not have wanted to live in Tennessee. Uh, it's, it's Rocky Top, where you'll see the side of the hill. And it's rock all the way down with just a little dusting of soil on top. Enough to let stuff grow. Well, good thing it rains all the time. Because it would have been hard for... You wouldn't have; these plants wouldn't have survived in a de- desert climate, because there's no depth of earth. It's just rocky top. And so my my kind neighbors were like, "You're gonna hit rock any second. It, it, you're gonna have like a two inch margin for your kids to bounce. It's not gonna be enough." And I, clueless but optimistic, said, "Oh well, it's, it's okay. I'll get at least I'm getting exercise. I'll just keep digging away and see what happens." Well. I did hit Rocky Top, but miraculously, it was three feet down, like the exact level of where my trampoline needed to be. My neighbors came back and were dumbfounded, like, you lucky guy, I mean, you must have picked the one spot in the state where you could dig three feet down. Well, I'll take it. But to think about this idea of Rocky Top, there's no depth, my roots can't penetrate, I know there's water down there somewhere. I just can't access it. And as a result, I'm dead as soon as the sun really starts beating down. What could have given me life will rob me of it instead. So notice this description. Keep going with the interpretations. Matthews, Yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth for a while. Or Mark, They have no root in themselves, And so endure for a time. Same idea. And then Luke, these have no root, which for a while believe. So again, there's this sense of all looks well at the beginning. Think about converts who join the church and they look as solid as anyone else. And yet, how many are those who fall away as opposed to those who become lifelong disciples? So much of it is the depth of their taproot. And again, notice the detail there. Why did they only dureth for a while? That's a shorter form for endureth. It couldn't endure. It only endured for a time. It's for a while, they believed, because of that lack of root. But notice how Matthew and Mark both said it. No root in himself. No root in themselves. There's something about having your very own root. It's interesting, there are parasitic plants out there. And as they, a parasite trying to leach off of something else, uh, think about the kinds of plants that grow on other plants. And the thought of setting down a taproot through the soil, especially if it's rocky, forget that. I'm not going to, ain't nobody got time for that. What will I do instead? What, if I can just penetrate the bark of the tree and then let the tree do all the work. <laughs> the tree is going to be bringing up the water from the depth and get it to all of its branches and leaves. Well, I'll just be, I'll pretend to be one of its branches. I'll fake my way as one of its leaves. And, and that way it will do all the heavy lifting from the deep, deep water table. That to me is one of, my most, one of the most important phrases in Stony Ground. And it makes me wonder, do I have my own root? Is it in myself? Or am I leeching off of someone else's faith and testimony? Living on borrowed light is how I've often heard it said. Well, in this case, it's living on borrowed water. And in that case, good luck when the light really starts beating down on you. I might... I might join the church because I loved the missionaries that taught me. But if I don't love the message that they taught me, then I won't last. I might head out on a mission because of social pressure or because my parents believe. But once my mission becomes hard, and once the sun really starts beating down, I might go on a mission for someone else. I probably won't stay on a mission for anyone else. And please don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to cast shade, no pun intended, on anyone who had to come home for real reasons. But if it was a social reason that got you out, a social reason won't keep you there. Okay? You have to have your own root. And even with your own root, sunlight can still beat down. It's, it's going to be hard. Okay? How's my access to living water? How deep do my own individual roots reach? That's part of my challenge. And then the explanation of what is causing these problems, what's, what's leading to the withered plant. I love these ones. Matthew's version, when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. Now we're starting to see what the sunlight represents. Okay, This is what you're up against. This is what could cause growth if you had enough water, but is causing death because you're not tapped in independently. So, in Matthew's version, it's tribulation and persecution. In Mark's version, afterward, when affliction or persecution ariseth for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. And in the Luke version, in time of temptation, they fall away. Now, notice some differences here. So, but combine the three, let's harmonize the accounts in this one. And what is the sunlight? What ends up beating down on us and ends up beating us down? It is tribulation. Persecution, affliction, and temptation. Interesting. Tribulation and affliction, let's put those together. That's just adversity. Not just. <laughs> adversity is rough. You go through hard things. And I, I just can't cope with this. I can't handle this. I'm, I'm out. I Forget it. Where is God in all of this? And we don't think... We lose sight of the capital S-O-N because we're being beaten down by the lowercase S-U-N. Now, what about persecution? That's an intense one. That I believe, I have faith, I have my own testimony. I can handle hard things. But when it's a man-made hard thing, when someone else is attacking me, oh, pray for those that persecute you. Despitefully use you, pray for them, love your enemy. We needed all those instructions in the Sermon on the Mount. But if we're not tapped into the Lord's living water where we can turn the other cheek, if we're instead responding in kind and we're angry, then yes, our the plant of our testimony and spirituality will end up shriveling and dying. And then the third one, temptation, that's a rough one too. Can I handle it when I'm tempted? Or do my best intentions evaporate because I don't have sufficient moisture to keep me trusting in God's ability to lead me not into temptation and, in fact, lead me out of them? Okay? Now, for some, this might happen slowly. For others, it might happen very quickly. And both Matthew and Mark give us those options. If remember in Matthew's version, it was by and by he is offended. Eh, by and by, it takes time. Whereas in the Mark version, immediately they are offended. Some, fast or slow, if we're not tapped into living water, beware of the sunlight. Sunlight that could have helped you grow. Now turn to the thorny ground, our third soil type. And in the description of the soils, Matthew says, "The thorns sprung up and choked them, choked the seeds. Mark's version, the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. So again, there we see, it's still there. It's just not giving any. it's not giving off any fruit. And yeah, the plant is alive but unfruitful. And in the Luke version, the thorns sprang up with it and choked it, which is an interesting detail. With it, it's like, There was nothing in the soil. I wonder if this was just freshly plowed and both good seed and the seed of good plants and the seed of weeds both look at it going, oh, dibs, I want that. Or is it that Satan wasn't even worried about the the soil until the seed was planted? And then all of a sudden it's like, oh no, good growth is going to happen. Well, if if it can grow good plants, it can probably grow bad plants too. So let me in on that action. And immediately, it springs up with the the plant. Thorns and plants growing together, side by side. Sound a little like human nature? That we're improving in some areas and getting worse in other areas. And my strengths and my weaknesses are all rolled into one. And that's just, that's the mix and mess that I am. Also, notice the springing up of Matthew and Luke. Versus the growing up of Mark. And so these weeds that end up entering our lives, did they come quickly or did they come slow? In some ways Satan doesn't care as long as they come. Something to distract. Something, I mean it sounds like this is good soil because stuff's growing there. All kinds of stuff is growing there. It sounds like there's plenty of moisture and plenty of depth of earth. I honestly... Wonder, is there much difference between thorny ground and good ground before anything's planted? I mean, the fact that the thorns will grow there right alongside something better, the real difference is are you weeding? Because bad stuff's going to grow as soon as you give it a chance. My wife always laughs that as soon as the bed is made, kids will come out of, the, out of the, the shadows ready to jump on it. There's something about a nicely made bed that's just asking, mess me up. And same with a freshly plowed or freshly weeded garden. All kinds of stuff is going to grow there. Okay? And some will spring up immediately. Some will grow up over time. We need to be ready for both. And then from the explanations of all three, Matthew's version, these are the people who heareth the word, and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becometh unfruitful. Now we're starting to identify what types of weeds are these. What types of thorns? Matthew's care of the world, deceitfulness of riches. Mark's version, they hear the word and the cares of this world I wonder if there's a difference. Matthew's is singular. Mark's is plural. Do I have worldly cares? All these things pulling at my attention. Or is it just worldly care? I care too much about the world. I'm just kind of drawn towards Babylonian things. They're just so appealing. Well, whether it's care or cares, it's the world we're up against. And it's the world that's choking out our potential growth and fruitfulness. Add to that, Mark says, the deceitfulness of riches, just like Matthew did. But notice this one, and the lusts of other things. As soon as those enter in, they choke the word and it becometh unfruitful. Lusts of other things? What I'm hungering for, this is change the stones to bread. This is worship me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. This is Satan's a master when it comes to planting weeds. Or Luke's version. We'll add another detail here. When they have heard, they go forth and are choked with cares. Saw that before. Riches. Luke doesn't let us know just how deceitful those riches are, but thankfully Matthew and Mark both did. Careful about that wealth. It's going to trick you. It will deceive you into thinking that you're going to do good things with it, where you probably won't. But here's the other one. And pleasures of this life. I mean, it may not be so immoral to be to qualify as lusts of other things but eh, just pleasures the pleasures of this life president or elder maxwell used to say it's not always transgression that keeps us from god sometimes it's just distraction to divert ourselves from other things well because of those cares and those riches and those pleasures of this life compare that to the joys of the next life no just this one just the, the, the things I can see right in front of me. I've got worldly myopia, and this is all I can see. Well, if that's what you're focused on, then you will bring no fruit to perfection. Ah, interesting detail there. The other ones, just, they just become unfruitful. This one, maybe there actually are a few meager fruits on this plant. But none of them are growing up to perfection. And that's really what we're after. In fact, that's really what we're getting on the good ground. So turn to that and notice these details. For Matthew's version, they brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. In Luke's version, it just springs up and bears fruit a hundredfold. So for Luke, it's just like, wow, and this is miraculous multiplication. Like, wait, really? I planted one seed. And it grew a plant that eventually produced a hundred seeds of its own. Uh, Wow. Talk about good ROI. Your return on investment is incredible here. Now, that's the Luke. The Matthew, like I said, it's not always that way. Sometimes it's a hundred. Yeah, take the miracle when it comes. Sometimes it's 60. Sometimes it's only 30. But at least it's growing. And in fact, that's where I preferred the Mark version over either Matthew's or Luke's because it takes the three accounts that, or the three numbers that Matthew gives but reverses them. Mark's version, it did yield fruit that sprang up and increased and brought forth. Some 30, some 60, some 100. And based on plant growth I wonder, could that be the same plant over time? Instead of just, oh yeah, there are three different types, and some grow a little and some grow a lot, and that's just how it is. Now, yeah, there's some truth to that. Uh, we see in the parable of the talents, some got five, and some got two, and some got one, and that's okay, okay? The Lord's still giving to everyone. But I also wonder if you keep working the soil and keep nourishing the plant, and you're pruning and digging and dunging and doing all those things that the allegory of the olive tree says that we should, then a 30-fold growth this year. I wonder if we could get it to a 60-fold growth next year. I'll give it time. Keep working on it. Be patient. And I'll bet that even this tree can eventually produce a hundredfold. That's why when Mark says it sprang up and increased, ah, we're getting better with time. We're growing up in God. Again, compare that to what we saw about springing up and then withering on the stony ground. This is springing up and increasing. And then from the three explanations, Matthew, Mark, Luke, of, of the good ground, the way Jesus describes them, are that, these are they that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth, some an hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. So for Matthew's version, you hear and you understand. That's the key to good growth the exact polar opposite of the wayside that wouldn't hear and did not understand okay, we're seeing the opposite there, the extremes from Mark's version, these are the ones who hear the word and receive it and bring forth fruit, some 30, some 60 some 100, so you hear the word and receiving, is receiving and understanding the same kind of idea, I get it it makes sense, Or I have an open heart, an open mind I want more, I continue to receive Well, no wonder I continue to increase, right? And then the Luke version, this is maybe the best of them all. In an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. So many great details there. What is the good ground? Oh, it's the heart. And what makes the soil so productive? It's that the heart is good. Well, what do you mean by that? It's honest That's amazing. An honest heart. Are we being honest with the Lord in terms of what he's taught us? Are we being honest with the spiritual experiences that he's given us to confirm that the seed is good? I hear so often people who have left the church that loudly declare their honesty. The way they always say it is their intellectual honesty. I've just seen too much messiness in church history I, I see the, the, the fallibility of, of prophets of God and I just to be intellectually honest I, I can't stay in the church okay I'm grateful for your integrity I'm grateful for your honesty but is, is it solely intellectual honesty what about your spiritual honesty That's why most of them have completely jettisoned spirituality as far as the Spirit's ability to confirm truth that doesn't always make sense in a merely intellectual way. Are you being spiritually honest with the experiences that you've had? Or are you now reframing all of those spiritual experiences to chalk it up to nothing but elevated emotion and confirmation bias? Is that all that it was for you? There is no Holy Ghost. Oh, well, then no wonder there's no plant here anymore. You've uprooted it, even where there had been sufficient moisture. Nope. Uh, Are you being honest with what the Lord has confirmed to you in the past? Then hold the good ground that you've already gained and start pulling out the weeds that the adversary is trying to plant. Gather out the stones. This, This is a good place to grow. Honest. Good. You hear the word. You keep the word. You shoo away those fowls that are swooping down, trying to gobble it up. No, I'm keeping it. I'm not going to allow myself to wither like the stony ground. I'm not going to allow myself to be distracted by the weeds of the world, like on the thorny ground. No, I'm keeping it and I'm bringing forth fruit. Notice the detail with patience. Maybe I am only a 30-fold increase. In fact, maybe I'm only one or two. Maybe I've got fruit and it's not yet to perfection, like we saw on the thorny ground. But at least I have a fruit. Okay, now do some weeding. You've got good ground. There's enough moisture. Here comes the sun. Quit allowing weeds to distract and divert your strength into lesser things. And with your patience, your fruit can grow up unto perfection. With your patience and care, the sower himself will help you become more fruitful than you could possibly imagine. 30 to 60 to 100, it takes time. Wait for another growth cycle. Now, are these soil types making sense? I hope so. Are we, is it worth the effort to bring in all the added detail from every writer that re- recalls it? I hope you know that that's yes. But I also hope that we're seeing that this goes beyond... In fact, even in the way I've been trying to explain this, I've been jumping back and forth between different soil types because there's so many different parallels and similarities and connections between them, which ought to alert us that the Lord is not describing four completely independent types of people and that's just how you were wired and that's what you are and sorry you came to earth as wayside soil no what we're seeing here are not four drawers that we pull out in different types of people but rather a broad spectrum of soil types of soul types and there is a possibility for movement across that spectrum in either direction There seem to be four main areas across that spectrum. And those describe the four different soil types. But think about what can happen to get people to move one way or the other. And this to me is one of my favorite things to wrestle with when it comes to the parable of the sower. Years ago, I wrote an article about the parable of the sower to really lay it all out. I can put a link to it in the the video description if you want. But to see, because here's the thing, if the Lord is teaching the apostles and they are fellow sowers of the seed you're going to be out planting the word of God left and right and you're going to meet all kinds of people you already have Uh, here we are there with the mixed multitudes at the Sea of Galilee don't give up on someone just because they didn't listen the first time you need to be patient (laughs) Uh, you need to work on weeding and gathering out stones and, and breaking through the hardened crust of a wayside person You even need to keep an eye out on the good soil because Satan has a way of never giving up on them either. And so this now becomes an eternal tug of war with Satan on one end of the spectrum trying to draw everyone toward the wayside because that's his ultimate goal. Whereas the Lord is on the opposite end of the spectrum doing all within his power to coax us all onto good ground. So to me, the beauty of all of this Is the reality that people can change. Let's see how. One final chart here, okay? The master chart. (laughs) Let's lay out our four soils again: wayside, stony ground, thorny ground, good ground. Let's remind ourselves that it's the heart that we're really looking at here: the hardened heart, the shallow heart, the worldly heart, the fruitful heart. Let's let Lehi join in and remind us of the people in his dream: those that wander off in strange roads, those that partook of the fruit but fell away those that have found a new home in the great and spacious building and those that partook of the fruit and remained at the tree. Now, let's look at Satan's efforts first as he's pulling everyone in his direction. What's his goal on wayside soil? Keep people from obtaining the word. Don't even let them hear it. Let's lock up scripture through much of the Middle Ages. Let's... let's. Oh, close the doors of our nation to messengers of truth. Let's do every... That, that's the, the best. Because then nothing happens at all. Okay? If we can nip this in the bud. If we can send the, the bird swooping in immediately. So, keep them from obtaining the word. Now, if something slips through. And uh, oh. a, a seed... The, the bird didn't get there in time. And now it touched ground Well, fine, trample it out. Trample it immediately. Keep them from understanding the word. And if by any chance they actually do understand it, then by all means, keep them from believing it. Those were the verbs that we saw throughout these accounts. Obtain, understand, believe. And each one is a chance for Satan to withdraw and regroup and try harder. I couldn't stop them from obtaining it. Fine. Stop them from understanding it. Couldn't stop them from understanding it. Fine. Stop them from believing it. And we see him doing that all the time. Those that have tried to teach people the gospel in the mission field, those that have tried to teach a a sleepy group of early morning seminary students in the morning, those that have had a group of young women or young men or Sunday school class at church that just seems like, I don't want to hear this. Or, fine, I heard it, but I don't get it and I don't care to. Or, fine, you explained it well enough, but I don't know if I believe it. Well, welcome to the wayside. What does he do, though, if you get through that? And the seed gets across, gets past the top layer, but there's not a lot of depth there. Okay, Stony ground, you see how wayside can, can kind of morph into stony ground? They're so similar. Notice what happens here. What's Satan's game plan for stony ground? Well, fine. Let's restrict knowledge and testimony. They have a little. Let's make sure they don't get a lot. Okay? If we can stop them from continuing. Since this is a growth cycle or a shrinking cycle, since there's no static stability here, you're either increasing or decreasing in light and truth, then fine. Let's not let them increase. Restrict it. Don't give them any depth of earth. In fact, the depth it goes along with desire. Let's rob them of any kind of desire. And that way they can rest content with their shallow spirituality, when, in which it's only a matter of time that they'll end up dying spiritually. There's plenty of sunlight out there to beat down upon them. So yes, rob them of a deep desire. Another approach is to keep them from gaining their own testimony. Oh no, Go ahead and leech off of a church leader. Go ahead and, and mooch off mom and dad and live on borrowed light because the day will come it will be insufficient for you. Yeah, let's make sure that they have no root in themselves. Let's cut them off from sources of living water. Let's ramp up the heat of the sun and attack them with tribulation and affliction and temptation as much as we possibly can because then their time on stony ground will have been short-lived and now they're back to the wayside right where we want them. Well, if you're able to get past that and you've cracked the top layer, you've pushed tap roots down through the stone, you're now tapped into the water table and it's your very own root you're going to have plenty of moisture so bring on the sun well Satan's still not giving up he says okay fine you were able to progress to the point of thorny ground but look out for my thorns because they will choke you here's Satan when he finally admits fine I can't kill the plant okay let's not let it be fruitful then because if, if I can convince you that being a shade tree is enough, then fine. It's the fruit that I'm scared to death of. Plant is just the next worst thing. Okay, Let's keep this plant unfruitful. Let's find it's on good ground. There's nothing we can do about that. But let's direct the strength of the soil and the nourishment of the, for the water and the, the sunlight. Every good thing that it has. This plant has everything good going for it. Fine. Direct it away from itself. Or especially away from any fruitfulness. And that way it will feel justified in at least occupying space in the garden. It's just all the real strength is going to other things. Worldly things. And even if it does happen to bear some kind of fruit. Don't don't, don't worry. It's not the end of the world. Can you picture Uncle Screwtape? telling Wormwood, this is what you do, but this is how you tend the garden, my dear nephew, uh, my junior devil here. What do you do? Fine. Let it have a fruit. Just some token thing that will lull them into a false sense of success or security. Like, look at me, look how fruitful I am. One. (laughs) If we can end up with a one seed to one fruit ratio, I'd say we're doing pretty well. Just don't let that fruit reach perfection and even if it does hmm, is all hope lost no if there's one thing Satan has it's, it's hope uh, not the godly kind but the, the, the devilish kind he's still holding out hope that he can convince us to come his way even if you're on good ground what does he do fine Let's we lost the battle let's make sure we win the war Let's keep them from enduring. And if we can then slowly in- introduce some weeds, start sucking away that, that strength, start drying out that soil until it starts getting compacted again, introduce some rocks. Pretty soon we've, we've won and we've moved a good plant all the way back to wayside soil. We've changed the, the, the status of that soil. So no enduring. How about this one? Attack their honesty. Or like I said before, let's just focus on intellectual honesty at the expense of spiritual honesty. Let's attack their goodness. Let's instead encourage, oh, I don't know, let's, how about pride? That's one option. Look at me. I have a, I'm a hundredfold, you piddly 30-fold. Come now. Oh, because look out for the pride cycle. Pretty soon you'll be down to 60, down to 30, down to none. Because pride can also lead to complacency. That's really where the pride cycle comes in. So if I can get you to be so proud of your growth that you no longer keep growing, then, then the shrinking will begin. Or how about this? What if I stifle your testimony? That's, how's that for limited growth? Be content with the 30-fold. That's good enough. Or be content with a 60, be content with a 100. Fine, just don't increase. Stay where you are, because that's going to be a losing proposition for you. And if, or, how about this? You're growing? Fine. Then let me make you impatient in your growth. Why aren't I at 60 yet? Why aren't I 100 when my friends seem to be growing faster than me? Uh, and that competition and that comparison will lead to criticism and complaint. And then we're moving back toward thorny ground. See, I hope this is making sense. It's fascinating to me to watch the adversary pulling us in his direction, no matter what soil type we are. But if that's the bad news, I am grateful for the good news that God is the gardener here, as Elder Hebe Brown used to say. And he will do all he needs to do to make he never gives up on any of us. So notice some of his strategies, tactics for e- each space along the spectrum. If you're on the wayside, that's okay. He will break up the soil every, every way he can. This is where you see the allegory, the allegory of the olive tree, where the servants of the Lord of the Vineyard and eventually the Lord of the Vineyard himself are out digging, I mean, to dig, to to get the pickaxe and get past Rocky Top and And break through that wayside soil. I will teach you the word. I'll make sure that it's accessible to you. And not just accessible, understandable too. I will call for many fishers and many hunters. And I will send them out into the mountains and the hills and the holes of the rocks. I will make you fishers of men. I will call missionaries elders and sisters and old and young, and I will send them across the earth to break up wayside soil. I want you to have the word. I will explain it in any way that I can until you understand. And I will promise you the Holy Ghost to confirm truth so that you can believe. And in that process, I've moved you out of wayside. Now, you may still only be in stony ground, we cut through the top soil, cut through the top layer, the crust, but there's still stony ground beneath. Well, fine. I'm not going to give up on that either. I will gather out the stones. It's, it's digging. It's, it's dunging. It's, it's watering. There's so many of those beautiful verbs in Jacob 5. And what is the Lord doing? He's working on this spectrum of soils, trying to pull us in the godly direction. How does he do this with stony ground? Well, he helps them gain their own testimony. Quit living on borrowed light. Gain a testimony of your very own. Not only gain your own, but I will help it grow. I will increase your desire. I will deepen your roots. Remember Alma, if you can but desire to believe, then let this desire work in you. And that's what's happening with stony ground. If The water's down there. You can get to it. The Lord will help us access that living water until it's a well within us springing up unto everlasting life. Beyond that, the Lord will also protect us from the the beating sun. He wants us to grow, not be scorched. And so to help us through our affliction and tribulation, to give us peace despite the persecution, for so persecuted they the prophets that will be for you. To help us through our temptation and allowing us to withstand every temptation through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he does with them. That's how the sun combats the sun. Now, if you can get through that, this soil is looking better and better. Uh, I dunged it, and that's why it's now, I fertilized this stuff. Okay, now it's good. I've been watering it. Now dig, dung, uh, plant, and prune, and, and water, and weed? Ah, yes, weed. That's what I need to be doing now. Because sure enough, as soon as the ground is good, Satan jumps in there so that the weeds can grow up right alongside the good, the good plant. So what's the Lord going to do on thorny ground? Well, like I said, let's weed. Let's help you focus on God instead of the world. Let's say that no man can serve two masters. Let's help you focus on God rather than mammon. Let's bring you to Zion and wean you off of Babylon. How do I do that? Let's help you see the world for what it really is. Let me show you the deceitfulness of riches and help you focus on the true riches instead. Let's help you overcome the lusts of the world as well as the lust of the flesh, and those pleasures of this world. It's amazing how they will evaporate once they are placed side by side with the joys of heaven. Let me show you that worldly things bear no worthwhile fruit. And maybe the best way to do that is to let you taste the fruit of the tree of life. Because once you've eaten that which is sweet above all that is sweet, pure above all that is pure, the most delicious above any other fruit, then yes, fruit that will not grow to perfection pales in comparison. I just can't go back and eat, to, to eat that nasty stuff. When a good friend of mine that was an amazing gardener himself brought some of his bounty, and shared it with us? I remember the tomato particularly. I ate a tomato and thought, is this, what is this? And they're like, well, it's a tomato. I'm like, I knew that, but how is it so different than what I've spent my whole life eating from the store? I have no clue how supermarkets are able to withdraw that much flavor out of a tomato. I just never had one that was so natural, so fresh. It was amazing. And again, pales in comparison. Once you taste the good, man, you see through the world's deceitfulness. Okay? It convinces you to start weeding because <laughs> none of that will get, give me godly fruit. Now on good ground, just like Satan doesn't give up uh, when, you're, when you're there, the Lord doesn't stop either. He keeps on working, even on good soil. And what's his strategy there? Well, he seeks your continual growth. Your constant progress. This is a gospel of eternal progression after all, right? The Lord is never complacent. He never grows prideful. Instead, he helps us stay humble. He helps us be patient in our growth. Where you are today is wonderful. And where you'll be tomorrow will be wonderful too. Be patient and grow up in God. He helps us endure to the end. In honesty of all of all sorts, in true goodness. I am amazed at these this spectrum of soils. I am amazed at the persistence of both the Lord and the adversary. If this is the tug of war, where will we be? In fact, I've mentioned this before. Years and years ago, Michael McLean and Bryce Newbert and Merrill Jensen wrote a masterpiece an allegory they called the garden. And it is an allegory about the Garden of Gethsemane. It's an Easter allegory, and it is a masterpiece. In it, there are so many characters in the garden that are struggling. A ram caught in a thicket that can't get out. How's that for thorny ground? There is a seedling that cannot grow. How's that for wayside or there in the, among the stones? There's other, other characters, a millstone that feels worthless, just grinding things down. There's a, a tree that is barren and cannot give fruit. It's still alive, is that thorny ground? I mean, there's, to put that allegory, that oratorio, to the, that musical, there in the parable of the sower, it fits beautifully. But especially fitting are two main characters. I think as I should say three. There is a landlord that feels so possessive of this garden and doesn't want anything to change for the better. As far as he's concerned, he wishes everything was wayside soil and wants everyone to feel trapped in their present circumstance. That, That landlord is Lucifer. Beyond him is a gardener. And this gardener is a good man, though he doesn't own the garden. He is trying to till it. He is trying to dig and dung and plant and prune and water and weed and everything else. But he knows that his efforts will be insufficient and that the only real solution will come with the man with many names. This is the Christ character in in the garden. And this man with many names will come and set the the trapped ram free coax growth out of the seedling allow this barren tree to become fruitful Help the millstone see its purpose. Cast out the landlord. (laughs) Allow this garden to receive its paradisiacal glory. And thank the gardener who represents prophets for all their diligent work throughout the dispensations. It's amazing to see the landlord pulling everyone towards the wayside and to see the man with many names doing all he can for his garden. Think back to the allegory of the olive tree and what does the Lord of the vineyard keep saying? What more could I have done for my vineyard? I am grateful for a Savior that will do everything he possibly can to work our soil, to help us become more like him. He knows that there is depth there. He knows that there is fruitfulness in our future. We just have to trust the process and trust the gardener in all that he's doing. We also have to join him in that work because this is unlike the, the literal aspect of this story. The soil gets to choose for itself in so many ways. In fact, uh, the, all this work that is required, are we engaged in it ourselves? Are we digging? Are we dunging? Are we planting? Are we pruning? Listen to this from Alma 32. Because not only is First Nephi 8 a great connection to Matthew 13 and this parable of the sower. Lehi's dream fits perfectly. But Alma 32, 32 does also. Because this is Alma's teaching about the word like a seed being planted. This is our experiment upon the word. Is it good? Well... What's our control group? The seed is actually the control group. It's the same seed every time. The difference here is the kind of soil it's in. So what are we going to do? We better find good soil to see if the seed will actually grow. And the way that Alma 32 ends, the last few verses are powerful. Try to see the parable of the sower in what Alma teaches here. Alma 32, 38 and 39. By now, you know the seed is good because it's grown. In fact, it was an amazing seed. It's grown into an actual tree. But like I said, Satan's not going to give up even though the the soil has been proven good and the seed has been proven good. We're going to try to tear everything down, bring it all back. And here's the problem. If ye neglect the tree and take no thought for its nourishment, I guess you were complacent in its growth, right? So you're taking no thought. Behold, it will not get any root. Uh Uh-oh, we're starting to look like we're back on the stony ground. And when the heat of the sun cometh and scorcheth it, oh yep, that's the stony ground for you. Behold, it hath no root. Hmm, is that no root in itself? Doesn't matter. There's no root here. Well, what happens? It withers away. And what do you end up doing? You pluck it up and cast it out. Now we're back to wayside soil. Exactly what the adversary wanted all along. And whose fault is it? Alma says, Now this is not because the seed was not good. Neither is it because the fruit thereof would not be desirable. Remember, the fruit is the most desirable of any other fruit. So what's the problem? It's not the seed, it's not the fruit, it's not the tree. It's because your ground is barren, Alma says. You allowed it to become barren. You let the devil plant weeds, you let him introduce stones. You let him pack it down under the feet of man and let the birds swoop in to gather out whatever might be growing. Your ground is barren and ye will not nourish the tree, therefore ye cannot have the fruit thereof. It's just how it works. In verse 40 he says, Thus, if ye will not nourish the word, looking forward with an eye of faith to the fruit thereof, ye can never pluck of the fruit of the tree. It's an amazing moment there at the end of Alma 32 where he finally lets you know what kind of seed you've been planting all along. This is (laughs) no mere garden variety, fruit or vegetable. This is the tree of life you're planting. And you're planting it in the soil of the soul, in a good and honest heart. That way the tree of life can be growing within you, just like the well of living water was within you springing up unto everlasting life. A portable well, a portable tree, really? Really. Because you are the soil yourself. Years ago, I got an email from a student uh, that we'd been studying together a lot and in, in our classes, and, and she shared a beautiful, beautiful insight based on... We've been talking about other things, But she went and was pondering the parable of the sower and an incredible insight came. A gift from God. And she gifted it to me. She sent me this insight in an email. She wrote, As I was reading, the thought came that these four scenarios describe what happens when I receive a prompting from the Spirit. Hmm, Interesting to see the seed here as some kind of spiritual impression. Just small, light, almost seems to kind of blow in from any direction but some seed landed in my heart a prompting from the Holy Ghost she said I have the privilege and responsibility to choose one of those four grounds in which to plant my spiritual seed number one wayside well I can completely ignore it number two stony ground I can consider it but not let it root in me and thus let the opportunity slip away Three, thorns, I can let other things get in the way and crowd out my good intentions. Or four, good ground, I can obey and see the blessings spring forth. I was amazed by this description. And I've been guilty of every one. An impression to go do something to help someone that I totally ignore. Well, there went, there went that seed. Or have the impression, but don't take it seriously. I recognized it, but then chalked it up to my own thinking. It was like, ah, it probably wasn't God after all. Well, there went that. One that I'm really guilty of is like, oh, no, that's a good impression. I know it comes from God. I'm totally going to get there. And then as busy as life gets, it gets crowded out with other things. And I don't get around to it. As opposed to the times I act on those impressions. And it's amazing the fruit that comes forth. This wonderful student, I should call her a teacher instead because she was teaching me, then said this, The real kicker for me is the realization that I choose the ground in which I plant my seed. Every time, God hands me the seed and waits to see where I will put it. Sound like the burning bush? (laughs) Sound like the Lord starting the lesson and seeing if we want to continue it? She ended, The thought makes me feel both happy for the garden he has provided me and sad for the seeds I did not plant. Well, knowing her, she plants more seeds than she allows to to fall off the wayside. I was grateful for her insight and grateful for a, a Father in Heaven that keeps on sending seeds my way. Just patient, hoping for godly growth in each of us if you we take that and go back to the end of Alma 32, take this wonderful student's insight and then l- listen to the last few verses of the, of the experiment on the word, the Sermon of the Seed, it's been called. Alma 32, verse 41 and 43. But if ye will nourish the word, yea, nourish the tree as it beginneth to grow, and by your faith with great diligence and with patience, looking forward to the fruit thereof, It shall take root, and behold, it shall be a tree springing up unto everlasting life. And then, my brethren and sisters, ye shall reap the rewards of your faith and your diligence and patience and long-suffering, waiting for the tree to bring forth fruit unto you. That fruit is the love of God. It is more delicious than anything else we could ever taste. But taste it we must. We must partake of it. Bring it in to the same heart where we planted good seeds to begin with. We have so much within our own power to prepare the soil, to humble ourselves and turn to the Lord and ask and seek and knock, to have ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to understand. We can be open And then we can trust in God's gardening. In fact, it's here that if I can just take an an extra minute or two and introduce that parable that only Mark seems to recall, the parable of the seed growing in secret, because I think it's so fitting as we conclude our discussion of the parable of the sower, the great parable of parables in Matthew 13. And then for the second half of our lesson this week, we'll look at all the other parables in much more abbreviated fashion. But listen to this from Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 26. Jesus said, so is the kingdom of God. So this is another parable of the kingdom. This is the picture he's trying to paint of what the kingdom of God is like. Here it is. It's as if a man should cast seed into the ground. Sound like the parable of the sower so far? But notice this. And should sleep and rise night and day and yes, I'm sure he's probably doing a lot of work on it between sunup and sundown. But he sleeps and he rises and the seed should spring and grow up. And then the most important passage in, the, in this parable, he knoweth not how. Huh, how is it doing that? And this goes far beyond just understanding the mechanics of I mean, you have photosynthesis and seed germination and plant growth. If you really think about it, even if you know the process, isn't it miraculous that some seed, just some little speck, you plant it in the ground and a tree can come of that? When you compare a picture of an oak to the size of an acorn, when you look at the redwoods or the sequoia and then see the little seed that was in some pine cone at one point, how in the world? I know not how. The, the, the growth cycle is explained a little bit more in depth in verse 28 and 29. There's actually a hymn in our hymn book that we, where we sing these lines. For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, after that, the full corn in the ear. And remember, corn is just grain. Okay? So the wheat is now growing from blade to ear to full grain there in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle because the harvest is come. That's really what the Lord is after. Back to the allegory of the olive tree. I want to lay up fruit for the season so that I might have joy in the fruit of my labors. It's harvest time that the Lord is preparing us for. And it's a harvest of good grain that he's after. But how does it get there? Yes, we work. And yes, we labor. We sun up, sun down. There's a lot of, a lot of planting and pruning and digging and dunging. But if you remember what Paul will say later, that yes, I, Paul, may have planted. And yes, Apollos may have watered. But where does the growth actually come from? It is God that giveth the increase. That's that's things growing we know not how. Why is my testimony stronger now than ever? How has my heart changed to the point that I'm no longer tempted by old temptations or troubled by past tribulation? that this sunlight is helping me grow. How did I access such deep wells of living water? Where is all this marvelous growth coming from? I'm not who I used to be. Well, good. Evidence of a good gardener. Evidence of good ground. You don't have to know how you've grown up in God. You only need to know that you're growing up in God. And may all the glory go to God, who is our gardener. Are we getting these parables? Are we understanding? Have we, have we, have we dug deep enough so that we can have 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold insight and greater understanding of what the Lord is trying to teach us? We spent a long time, this first half, in that one magnificent parable. And yet there's purpose there. Jesus spent more time on that parable than most of his others. And with the added explanation to his apostles. And again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, all weigh way in on it to help us see every nuance that we possibly can. Part of the beauty here, too, is this is the first of the parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13. And then boom, 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 rapid fire. He'll keep giving us more and more and more. So in some ways, he's laying the foundation here. Again, he's got a mixed multitude in front of him. He is the sower and he's planting seeds as he speaks with the kinds of people proliferating and spreading across the spectrum of what they'll do with the, with the words that he's giving them. Now, for these apostles, there's even more to it than just that. And to a modern sower of the seed, namely Joseph Smith, He saw some things in these parables, starting with the sower and then moving forward, that, wait a minute, the Lord isn't just describing the kingdom kind of once and for all, this is what the kingdom looks like. No, he's laying out the process of how the kingdom comes to be. One of the genius, I mean, inspired moves that Joseph Smith gives us is he turns symbols into previews of coming attraction he takes objects and turns them into history instead when on the one hand you can take the parable of the sower as forth telling these are the types of people there are in the world Joseph takes it as that and then some he takes it not just as forth telling but as foretelling this is what the unrolling of the kingdom of God is going to look like Okay, it's really amazing how he does this so beyond descriptive Where here's a timeless truth. It's going to be prophetic. Here is a timely preview of things that will happen as they unfold. In some ways, we're back to Lehi's dream. Because Lehi's version was, here's these different people and here's the reality. And it's just timeless and it's all, this is how it is. We're coming unto Christ. And then when Nephi asks for for an explanation, he gets the historical version. So it's not just that the fruit is the love of God. It's the tree is the birth of jesus and the love of god made manifest through the condescension of christ it's not just that the iron rod is the word of god it's no the iron rod is the ministry of the word where jesus is sending his word and his apostles and it's like this iron rod is materializing as it comes out from the tree it's not just that the that the great and spacious building is the the pride of the world and the wickedness thereof it's it's that this is the apostasy. And as you watch the apostasy unfold, it's as if the great and spacious building is being assembled brick by brick. What what Lehi saw as objects, Nephi saw as events. It's amazing to see the difference between Lehi's dream and Nephi's visions, even though it's the same basic stuff. And same with what Joseph Smith perceives in these parables of the kingdom. Oh, there's a historical trajectory here. And it all begins with the parable of the sower. Joseph Smith said this about all these parables. They provide as clear an understanding upon the important subject of the gathering as anything recorded in the Bible. And that should be a wake-up call. Oh, that's what these are all about? This is the gathering of Israel. I don't know if we've had a prophet that has emphasized the gathering more than President Russell M. Nelson, with one exception, and that was Joseph Smith. Joseph was beginning the gathering. He, I mean, Many prophets and, and, and righteous men have longed to see the things you see and have not seen them. Well, Joseph is seeing them and wants the world to see them too. Are we seeing it? President Nelson is trying to give us those eyes to see those ears to hear, that heart to understand. This is the gathering of Israel on, on both sides of the veil. And some will be so ready to receive it, and others will, be a, will have a hardened heart. Don't give up hope on them. Start breaking through the soil. Start put, got, gathering out the stones. Start weeding out the thorns. Fertilize with your faith. Do something here. And this is where it all begins. The way Joseph Smith describes and explains the parable of the sower, listen to this. This parable, the sower, was spoken to demonstrate the effects that are produced by the preaching of the word. So that's kind of the, the timeless truth. That's just, every time the word comes out, people are going to respond to it differently. But now the historical aspect. And we believe that it has an allusion directly to the commencement or the setting up of the kingdom in that age, in Christ's age, uh, dispensation of the meridian of times. Therefore, we shall continue to trace his sayings concerning this kingdom from that time forth, even unto the end of the world. Now, the genius of what Joseph is giving us there, he's situating the parable of the sower historically in the time period of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the sower, and he's going forth to sow. It's his seed, his word that he's planting in people. And there are going to be all kinds of different reactions to his ministry. You'll have apostles on good ground that are willing to bring forth fruit at incredible personal expense. No amount of beating sun will wither them. You have others that are open to it, want it, but then get, end up getting so distracted or choked out by lesser things. Got my eye on you, rich young ruler. I wish you would have given up what you had so you could have come and followed. I would have given you more. A hundredfold increase. There are those that were too stony and, and wouldn't let the truth penetrate in their lives. Some of them just straight up wayside. didn't want to have anything to do with it. I'm looking at you, a few of you Pharisees. This is happening at, this is happening as we speak. Jesus isn't just teaching the parable of the sower. He's acting it out. He's embodying it. And then what? What happens next? And as Joseph Smith walks us through Matthew chapter 13, each new parable is a new stop along the historical path. Oh, unrolling of the kingdom of God. The stone is cut out, without the mountain, uh, cut out of the mountain without hands. It's rolling forth. And watch how it occurs. Parable of the sower. Christ establishes the kingdom in his day. Next, parable of the wheat and tares. Ah, there's the apostasy of the early church. Next, parable of the mustard seed. It's been planted, this tiny truth. But now we're finding growth. Of the kingdom of God after the restoration of the gospel. In fact, take the parable of the leaven, the one he, he brings up next. And as far as Joseph is concerned, it's amazing how parallel that is to the expanding testimony first placed within the three witnesses. As more and more people get a little of that leaven, it helps them grow in God and then they begin leavening the lump. The next parable is the parable of the treasure in a field, which Joseph interprets as the gathering to the lands of inheritance. We're finding places, treasures in fields. We've got to come and gather there. Or the parable of the pearl of great price, which comes next. We are searching out places for Zion. And all these other gathering spots can be given up for this one great pearl of greatest price. Finally, the the parable of the gospel net. The Lord having gathered all people into his kingdom, eventually there will be a judgment day where we are separating out good fish from bad, sheep from goats, right hand from left, wheat from tares. It all comes full circle. Are Are we seeing history unfold here? Foretelling, not just foretelling. It's amazing what Joseph perceives In these parables. It actually helps us make more sense too of something Jesus said in the Mark version of the parable of the sower. When the apostles first kind of get behind closed doors and ask Jesus, what's this all about? Jesus' response is really interesting. Mark 4 verse 13 Know ye not this parable? As in the parable of the sower How then will ye know all parables? If you don't get this one, how are you going to get the other ones? Now, we could take that in terms of just methodology. If you don't understand what I'm doing by telling this story, then are you not, are, is every other story going to go over your head? And you're going to think it's just story time with Jesus? No. You have to understand what I'm doing here, because I'm going to be doing that a lot. That's one possibility. The other possibility is, again, that prophetic one. If you don't understand what's happening with this parable, then you won't have eyes to see what's happening or what will happen with all of the other ones. I love that part because these apostles, you're going to be living through these. You're watching. In fact, this is fascinating. If the parable of the sower is the first historical, kind of chronological fulfillment, and the parable of the wheat and the tares is the next one, Apostles, you're out planting seeds too. And you'll be around long enough to see the tares grow up right alongside them. You'll live long enough to be choked out by those tares yourself. Not your testimony, but your life will be snuffed out by those. And you will watch the church enter its age of apostasy, little by little, as things are choked out and doctrines diminish as people don't have the same access to the living water as before. Again, live this. And I'll even say this, as far as these these next two parables are concerned, the parable of the wheat and the tares, and the parable of the mustard seed. Think about the four types of soil. And if it's wheat growing, and tares grow along right beside it, guess what soil we're on? In some ways, the parable of the wheat and the tares is zooming in on thorny ground. Let's isolate and see what's happening there because that's going to be the story or the preview of the apostasy. And then the next one, the mustard seed. One tiny seed planted and yet it grows into the greatest tree you could imagine? Sound like good soil? Sound like 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold type of growth? Okay, so the parable of the mustard seed is zooming in on good ground. And what does that look like? Okay, so historically... We're going from the church being set up and seed being planted to apostasy coming in, tares growing up alongside to let's clear some soil, plant a mustard seed in a 14-year-old boy and then watch what happens. The kingdom of God will grow and spread until there's room for everyone to lodge in its branches. That's what we see in the rest of these parables of the kingdom. It's amazing. So, parable of the wheat and the tares. On thorny ground. What does it look like? Matthew 13, verse 24 to 26. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man, which sowed good seed in his field. Sound like the sower? But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat, and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. This is like the Luke version of the parable of the sower. They're growing up together. Keep reading. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? Like, how did this happen? I could have sworn we used good stuff. Well, he said unto them, An enemy hath done this. This is not the fault of the seed. It's not the fault of the sower. But there's a tug of war going on. There's a landlord as well as the man with many names. There's a fight. So an enemy hath done this. And the servant said unto him, Well, wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? Should we, should we start weeding? I mean, the, the weeds are the problem here. And they're just going to end up choking out the wheat. And so let's, let's go in and pull out anything that, that shouldn't be there. Now that's, that, sounds, that sounds smart to me. Uh, The the sooner you get things out, the bad things out, the better the good can grow. There's some wisdom there, right? But notice the Lord's response. Verse 29, but he, the, the main sower, the master of these underservants, he said, nay, and here's why, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. See, here's something that they would have known that unless we're farmers, we probably don't know ourselves Until harvest time, it's really hard to tell the difference. Wheat and tares growing up together side by side, it's really difficult to discern. It's like telling your kids to go weed the garden. And by the time they're done, there's no more flowers or fruits or vegetables left. (laughs) Everything looked like a weed to them. Okay, Or everything looked like a flower, including the dandelions. And so they let, let them grow. It's like your little children, you still don't know the difference. So let's give it some time. Let's give you some time to become more discerning. Let's give the plants some time to become more easily discerned. In fact, notice this. He says to his servants, let both grow together until the harvest. That's when we'll start to see the difference. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather ye together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, the Joseph Smith translation of that reverses the order, and that's really key. We're going to see this again when we turn to D&C 86 in just a second. But the JST says, gather ye together first the wheat into my barn, and then we can tackle the tares. The tares are bound in bundles to be burned. So the order is really key. Now we're going to talk about that more in just a second. But here, just ponder this. Let them grow together until harvest. Now, in a literal way, like I said before, part of that is you can't tell the difference. And you're going to end up pulling out things that you shouldn't. But in the symbolic way, here's the beauty. Unlike plants... People can change. So please do not weed prematurely. This is why, in the allegory of the olive tree, the servants keep on pleading just give us some more time. Can we try again? Uh, I, I know they can change. If we just, I'm, I've been working with this olive tree for a long, long time, and the grafting's going pretty well. Uh, and what I did when I, when I scattered branches elsewhere, so I, I've got hope over there. And if we can bring them back in, we'll preserve the roots. We'll bring forth the fruit. Just, we just need more time. What more could I have done for my vineyard? You've done everything. But please let patience have her perfect work because people can change. And so what are we seeing? So many people that I know and love including my wife, who I love more than anyone. If harvest time had come in high school, she's the first to admit she was a tear. She didn't want to have anything to do with the gospel. She didn't care about it. It was just, ah. Uh, she loved weeds. <laughs> uh, distraction, popular, and just fun things to do. And wow, the standards and rules and commandments. They're so restrictive. No. I am so grateful that harvest time didn't come for her in high school because i don't know anyone with better ground than she she is good grain because she changed because the lord prepared her soil and the plant began to grow she knew not how but it changed everything so be patient And to me, the beauty of the parable of the sower, which we spent so much time on already, is it gives me a chance to try to diagnose. When I meet with students that are struggling, with family or friends, like raising my children, it's amazing how frequently the parable of the sower will pop into my mind and I'll start to try to identify. The same can be self-identify. Why am I struggling? Oh, because right now I'm on thorny ground. All my focus and attention is going to other things. And yeah, I'm still active outwardly, but mm, it's choking the word. Or why am I struggling so much with these kinds of issues? Ah, maybe I'm not tapped in deep enough to living water of my very own. Maybe I've I've just been kind of skimming off somebody else's spirituality. It's amazing because once you know what kind of soil someone is. At the moment. Again, this is not permanent condition. This is the spectrum of soils. But where you happen to be for the moment, I can start to understand what the devil is doing to pull you towards wayside and what the Lord is doing or what I can do to help him to pull you toward good ground. And that's what's happening here with this. The servant's. Can we weed? Can we start working on this? And the Lord's like, okay, good, good idea, but we gotta wait because some change needs to take place. Okay, don't pass judgment prematurely. I'm I'm working on some stuff. Just you wait. Now, the other thing we need to talk about here is is the timing of it all, because like I said, the King James is weed, and the JST is gather which is interesting. In the first version, gather out the tares first. So all you have left is this beautiful field of wheat. Well, it's already harvest time. We got to get going on this. And actually, let me say this by reversing it, instead of just pulling out, think about what would be all kind of relative density of your field. Do you have more wheat or more tares? Okay, is there more good plants or more weeds that shouldn't be there? If it's just an occasional weed, then it's easy to weed and just pull those out. If you can discern and tell what, what's, what's a weed and what isn't. But what if the field had kind of gone to pot? Have You ever had a garden that you didn't weed when you should have? and it's, And now the weeds are taking over the plants to the point that they outnumber the good stuff? And rather than weed, it actually would be easier to just kind of sort through it all and realize there's actually a good plant here that's actually growing something. How did you pull that off? Let's pull that out and transplant it somewhere else. Or if it's harvest time, let's harvest it because that's one of the few things that's worth harvesting. Then all that's left is the tares and those can easily just burn the field it's easy then to kind of gather those up together and get rid of them that's the we've reached that point sadly where it's no longer a matter of of weeding the occasional wayward soul now it is good being called evil and even evil being called good and and We're getting closer and closer to harvest. And so what is the Lord asking us to do? What was he asking those ancient apostles to do? Begin gathering out the righteous. Jeremiah said it would be one of a city and two of a family and bring them to Zion. As Joseph Smith sent out missionaries in his day, as President Nelson is turning us all into missionaries, whether in the mission field or on temple grounds, to gather Israel on both sides of the veil, Bring them into the garner of God, so that all that's left are the tares that have adamantly refused to become good ground. And that's harvest time and the end of the world. Now the best place to see this explained is in the Doctrine and Covenants, Section eighty-six. Joseph Smith uh, this is he's learning a lot. The section eighty seven, this Uh, Vision, this revelation prophecy about war taking place. How's that for signs of the times? Uh, 88 the olive leaf and really describing signs of the times. You can see 88 is the Doctrine and Covenants version of the book of Revelation. This is end times kinds of stuff. But section 86, what's on Joseph's mind? The parable of the wheat and the tares. Is it time for the harvest? The seeds have been planted. They're growing. I'm Seeing good ground, I'm seeing, or seeing good wheat, I'm seeing negative tares all around me. Is it go time? And so Joseph asks the question, what did you mean by the parable of the wheat and tares? Start in section 86, verse 1. Verily thus saith the Lord unto you, my servants, concerning the parable of the wheat and of the tares. You're my servants. You're out there working the wheat, tilling the soil. You better know this stuff. So let me introduce the cast of characters first. Behold, verily I say, the field was the world, and the apostles were the sowers of the seed. And after they have fallen asleep, which is death in this case, the great persecutor of the church, a.k.a. the apostate, a.k.a. the whore, a.k.a. even Babylon, that maketh all nations to drink of her cup, in whose heart the enemy, even Satan, sitteth to reign, there he is ruling over his wayside soil. Behold, he soweth the tares, wherefore the tares choke the wheat. Again, sound like thorny ground? And drive the church into the wilderness, which is the depiction of the apostasy that we see in the book of Revelation, for example, that we see hinted at in the Song of Solomon, for example. I mean there's some interesting things there about the church in the wilderness that will only eventually, restoration time period, come forth. Fair as the sun, clear as the moon. Terrible as an army with banners. Now, the explanation goes on. Verse 4, But behold, in the last days. Now we see in the, his, the history unfold, the chronology advance. In the last days, even now, while the Lord is beginning to bring forth the word, and the blade is springing up and is yet tender, but, but we're just starting here. And the gospel was just restored. Behold, verily I say unto you, the angels are crying unto the Lord day and night. Who are ready and waiting to be sent forth to reap down the fields. How's that for urgency on their part? How's that even for some impatience for harvest time? Is it time to go? These are destroying angels chomping at the bit. But the Lord said unto them, Pluck not up the tares while the blade is yet tender. For verily your faith is weak. Lest you destroy the wheat also. I love that, that parenthetical insertion. Your faith is weak. It's not just a matter of, oh, don't do it yet because you can't tell the difference. Don't do it yet because you're, you're going to end up pulling out wheat when you thought it was a tear. But there's something about faith here. And at this point, you haven't had time to develop the kind of faith that you'll need to, to be able to make it through the turbulent last days. So let's let patience have a perfect work. Let's postpone things but easy reign it in destroying angels i want my servants to develop greater faith greater faith in me as the sower greater faith in the process of growth Ye you know not how greater growth in discerning wheat and tares yourself and most importantly it's not just their faith that's weak it's everybody's faith that's weak at this point most people are, still have a little more tear in them than wheat and give them time to shift the center of gravity. <laughs> Begin weeding out their own weak things and replacing them with strengths. There's, I love the, the element of faith here. That kind of faith, strong faith, is going to take time. And it's going to take opposition. So let the tares grow up right alongside them. Then in verse 7, Therefore, let the wheat and tares grow together until the harvest is fully ripe. I mean, as ripe as it can get, the very end. Then ye shall first gather out the wheat from among the tares. And after the gathering of the wheat, behold, and lo, the tares are bound in bundles and the field remaineth to be burned. So there again, we get the same reversal of order that we saw in the JST in Matthew 13. And that's important because we are gathering out the elect. We are beating the bushes, searching through the field. Where is the good grain? My sheep hear my voice? Well, in this analogy, the good grain, it's almost like a sunflower. It just follows real light and real truth. Spot those ones. And those are the ones worth gathering out and bringing into the garner of God. The explanation in Doctrine and Covenants 86 then takes an interesting turn because he's just explained the parable. That's kind of all you need. But then he speaks to those servants in Joseph Smith's day and to all of us, their, their descendants, and says in verse 8 through 11, Therefore, so you got this now? Because I'm going to build on that. Therefore, thus saith the Lord unto you, with whom the priesthood hath continued, through the lineage of your fathers. For ye are lawful heirs according to the flesh and have been hid from the world with Christ in God. I think there the Lord is hinting, you are the wheat, my friends. You're the lawful heirs. You've got the keys of the kingdom. You've been given priesthood authority. You've been hid from the world with Christ in God. No wonder you've stayed good grain. I've been hiding you. Therefore, verse 10, As a result of all that, your life and the priesthood have remained and must needs remain through you and your lineage until the restoration of all things spoken by the mouth of all the holy prophets since the world began. And Joseph, you've just begun the restoration. But as President Nelson will someday say, it's an ongoing restoration and you ain't seen nothing yet. Okay, it's still picking up speed. So keep waiting until it's fully right, until all things have been restored. And then verse 11, therefore, you see all these therefores, it's kind of this crescendo of the, and this, oh, and then because of that, we'll have this, oh, and then because of this, we're going to go to that. So therefore, blessed are ye, if ye continue in my goodness. Stay on good soil. I mean, don't become tares, stay wheat. Continue in my goodness. A light unto the Gentiles. A piece of wheat shining as an example to the tares all around them. And through this priesthood, a Savior unto my people Israel. The Lord hath said it. Amen. In other words, go save the tares. Be good wheat. Shine as examples to all those that are around you. A light to the Gentiles, a Savior to my people Israel. Go be good grain. And then convert every tare that you can come in contact with. That's our purpose. That's our work. That's why he has given us his authority. That's why he's hid us in Christ. We got work to do. Now, like I said, that was work the ancient apostles did. It's work that modern apostles have been doing. It's work that we all need to be engaged in. The Lord, uh, the President Nelson has called us out to the field to get working. But also in this time period, if we're watching each parable build upon the last one chronologically, if the wheat and tares by and large was apostasy. And by the way, this is another parable that Jesus is going to explain, but he does it later on. So I'm going to follow Jesus's chronology here. And I'm going to follow his lead. We took a quick field trip to the Doctrine and Covenants, which is our preview of what the explanation will be. Jesus is going to give his own to his immediate audience there too. Just wait for it. But first we need to see the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven before Jesus gives that explanation. And the parable of the mustard seed, as Joseph Smith saw it, well, we're on to the next stage. We've gone from Christ's ministry, thank you, sower, through the apostasy, thank you, wheat and tares, to the restoration of the gospel, thank you, mustard seed. It's a straightforward parable, but I love it once you see that we're living in that mustard seed or in, in the tree, that, that, the bush that came as a result ourselves. So, Matthew 13, 31 and 32, that's a short parable. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like... And we should be used to that phrase by now. That's why they call these the parables of the kingdom. He's drawing another picture with each parable. So the kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his seed. We're still sowing seeds. And where's this one going to be sown? Well, in the good ground. This is our our zoom in on the good soil. He sowed it in his seed, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown... It is the greatest among herbs. It becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Now, technically, is the mustard seed the, the most microscopic? No. And is a mustard, does it grow into a, the mightiest tree out there? No, I've seen the sequoias. But in terms of oh, percentage of growth, in terms of something that his immediate audience would understand, that you take a seed so... Tiny. Does it really have potential in that? I've shared this with you before. Growing up in L.A., I never grew anything. But when I first made a little, what do they call those, square foot gardens, a little above the soil plot, and started planting things, I had no faith in seeds because I'd never seen any of them really grow. But they did. And I was blown away. Like, wow, I can teach Alma 32 with faith now. I can talk about the parable of the sower with conviction because seeds really do grow. Imagine that. Yeah, he knew not how. That's me to a T. I really had no clue. But what you're seeing here is a seed that is so easy to overlook, to underestimate, to assume that it has no potential. Well, just plant it and see. Come and see try the experiment upon the word and just see what happens. That can be on a personal level. Try the seed of faith. And even if my faith is small, oh, Lord, increase our faith. It can grow. Or on the more institutional level, if the seed is the church of Jesus Christ, that when it was first planted with six members, I mean, how's that for a, a massive multitude? The priesthood of God could fit in a one-room schoolhouse? The church was organized in a log cabin? I mean, really? I mean, to think about, yeah, this really was the least of all seeds. But notice what it's become. A bush so big you might as well call it a tree. (laughs) and one that continues to produce more and more seeds as time goes on. There's room for birds to come and lodge in. And maybe if they're lodging here in the mustard bush, they won't be so inclined to to go gobble up seeds on the wayside. We want to convert these fowls (laughs) into good birds. To me, this does tell me something about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. As far as what we're supposed to become? What the, uh, the restoration that began with such a small seed, that little stone cut out of the mountain, what's it becoming big enough to lodge in? And please remember that detail. It's supposed to be a place where the birds can come and gather to feel safe, to be protected. I worry, honestly, that for too much of my life, and perhaps for some of you as well, when I thought about the church as this mustard seed, it was all about the growth. And the church is growing by leaps and bounds. And look at our numbers and our percentages. And every conference, what, what number of millions are we at today? But I think what I didn't appreciate in that focus on growth was what the Lord focuses on here is more than just the growth. It's the fact that people were, or birds were coming to lodge there. Imagine if we focused less on making the church bigger and focused more on making the church more welcoming, more inviting. This is a place to lodge and live. We're here for you. I have a feeling if we focused more on the lodging size, then the the growth would come. How could it not? Birds would start spreading things. Chirping, word of mouth, word, word of beak. Okay, uh, and they would come flocking like doves to the window, as Isaiah said. Now, with that parable in mind, what would Jesus's initial apostles have known? Okay, Jesus is starting this process. The plant, the word is being planted. Some are going to respond well, and some are not. There's the parable of the sower for you. Uh, keep going. We're going to do everything that we have in our power, and yet. We're not going to live long enough to be here for harvest time. And our work is going to face all kinds of opposition as the tares grow right alongside us. So prepare ourselves for that. But guess what? The day will come in the latter days when a mustard seed is planted anew on freshly plowed soil. Maybe that's why he started with a farm boy. (laughs) A sower of the seed himself. And just you wait to see what the kingdom becomes. the the kingdom of God will eventually flourish. May the kingdom of God go forth, that the kingdom of heaven may come. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's going to happen in that later day. And we are living in that later day, that latter day. Listen to what Joseph Smith said about the parable of the mustard seed. Let us take the Book of Mormon, which a man took and hid in his field, securing it by his faith to spring up in the last days or in due time. I'm looking at you, Moroni. Thank you for having the courage to hide it in that field. And then letting me know where you had hidden it. Joseph then goes on, Let us behold it coming forth out of the ground, which is indeed accounted the least of all seeds. And sure enough, people despised and diminished the Book of Mormon from the very beginning. They reduced it to the absurd. They accounted it the least of anything. But behold it branching forth, yea, even towering with lofty branches and godlike majesty, until it, like the mustard seed, becomes the greatest of all herbs. It is truth, and it has sprouted and come forth out of the earth, and righteousness begins to look down from heaven, and God is sending down his powers, gifts, and angels to lodge in the branches thereof. I love that description of the mustard seed. Yes, it is the kingdom of God on the earth, restored in these latter days. Yes, it is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But even more specifically, it's the Book of Mormon. Plant that seed in your heart and watch it grow in God. Watch it get to the point where your soul has expanded to the point that God can send down his powers and gifts, his angels, to lodge with you. As President Benson has famously said, there is a power in that book and it will begin to flow into your life the moment you begin a serious study of it. I I love that promise because I know that it's true. And the more time I spend in God's word, whether it's the New Testament this year or the Old Testament last year or the Book of Mormon again next year, or the Doctrine and Covenants the year after that. all oh, the, the branches are spreading. And there's more and more room for the blessings of God to lodge within me. It's such a generous gift He's given us. So, so nourish the seed, till the soil, take care of this mustard seed. The next one is the parable of the leaven. And if there was a male planting a seed in the mustard seed parable, there's, this is a female planting leaven in a loaf. Okay, So this is, this is the Lord always trying to honor both male and female, his, his God's sons as well as daughters. Notice verse 33 of Matthew 13. Another parable spake he unto them. The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. And that's it. It's just this one, very, one verse, very brief parable. But Joseph expanded upon it, and again was thinking Book of Mormon here. If the Book of Mormon was the mustard seed, well, the Book of Mormon's the leaven too. Or at least the testimony of the Book of Mormon is. Because in his words, it may be understood that the Church of the Latter-day Saints has taken its rise from a little leaven that was put into three witnesses. Remember, there were three measures of meal. (laughs) Behold, how much this is like the parable. It is fast, leavening the lump, and will soon leaven the whole. In the early days of the church, the first thing people would see when they opened it was the testimony of the three witnesses. Just enough horizontal witness to engender in others a desire to get a witness of their own. One that would come vertically but that leaven was beginning to leaven the lump. Are we spreading it? Or are we allowing that that bread starter to, to stop instead of spreading it into other loaves? By the way, there's something about leaven as opposed to lump or leaven as opposed to loaf that leaven is a small part, but it affects the whole. It doesn't become the whole. And again, back to the idea of is the church supposed to be all about growth or is it supposed to be enough about goodness that people want to come in? Because again, when I was young, it was like someday everybody's going to be a Latter-day Saint. And I missed the, the message in the Book of Mormon where Nephi c- clearly explains it's not going to be that way. The church, as a percentage of the population... We'll always be small. But then again, as a percentage of the ingredients in the bread, you don't need much leaven to get the whole thing to rise. To engage and activate. If you're the light of the world, if you're the salt of the earth, if you're out there trying to bring out flavor and light and truth and testimony from everyone else around you, that's what the Lord is asking us to do, to leaven the lump. So listen to these verses in 1 Nephi chapter 14 and think leaven versus loaf. 1 Nephi fourteen twelve. it came to pass that I beheld the church of the Lamb of God and its numbers were few because of the wickedness and abominations of the whore who sat upon many waters. No wonder we're gathering out the wheat because the tares are everywhere. Okay. Nevertheless, he goes on, I beheld that the church of the Lamb, who were the saints of God, were also upon all the face of the earth. We may not be as numerous as everyone else, but we're everywhere everyone else happens to be. Make sense? And to see branches and wards proliferating across the planet. And in most places, far, far, far from the majority of people. But wherever those people are, there'll be a Latter-day Saint nearby. Some leaven to leaven the lump. And where's that leavening agent coming from? Look at verse 14 of 1 Nephi 14. It came to pass that I, Nephi, beheld the power of the Lamb of God, that it descended upon the saints of the Church of the Lamb and upon the covenant people of the Lord, who were scattered upon all the face of the earth, and they were armed with righteousness and with the power of God in great glory. That's why it's his savor that makes a difference for the salt. That's why it's his light that we are to hold up to the world. That's why it's his great glory, his power that is being, that is flowing into us so that we have the ability to make any difference at all. You don't have to be the biggest in numbers we only need to be filled with the power of God. That's leaven, and it will leaven the lump. Now, from there, Jesus will pause his parables of the kingdom and explain a little bit more of his methodology, talk a little bit more about parables in general. Back to Matthew chapter 13, verse 34, it says, All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables. And without a parable spake he not unto them. This is kind of how he did. That's how he rolled. This was his teaching style. He just liked telling stories. He was Thomas S. Monson. He was Abraham Lincoln. He's a storyteller. Oh, deep theology. I'll let Paul take care of that in the second half of the year. And we'll need some help with that. Okay, it's trickier. For Jesus, no, I'll just tell simple stories and hope that people have eyes to see and ears to hear. Now, Matthew's going to jump in here and say, oh, wait a minute, this totally sounds like an ancient scripture. And so Jude writing to Jews, is trying to alert them any time one of their scriptures is fulfilled in Christ. He really is the Messiah, my fellow Jews. Pay attention. So, right after he says, without a parable spake he not unto them, he then interjects, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, and this time he's quoting the book of Psalms. This is the 78th Psalm, verse 2, saying... I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Now, that's not exactly how it's said in the Psalms. In Psalm 78, two, it's, I will open my mouth in a parable. So far, so good. I will utter dark sayings of old. I actually like Matthew's version of it so much better. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Oh, this is line upon line and precept upon precept. And how do you go from one precept to the next or from one line to the next? Well, you treasure with the one that you've got already. You continue to receive and he continues to give. And that's why Jesus teaches this way. Because his parables were gifts that keep on, kept on giving. They were lessons that, from which we can continue to learn. I laugh sometimes at myself because I'm a teacher of analogies. That's how I think. I've, anytime I, try, I, I understand something or someone's trying to explain something, my mind immediately starts to race to some analogy. What can I lay beside? Right. That's what parable means in Greek. What can I lay beside this difficult concept that's so much simpler and easier to understand? And so I'm always trying to think of that. I remember once... Uh, it. it, it It can go over over the kill, honestly. Yeah, some of you are like, yeah, I hear it all the time. But I remember once my wife and I were talking about something, and we shared some insight, some principle, and it was like, ooh, that's good. That's true. That's powerful. And I'm like, it's kind of like, and my mind was racing, like, what's a good analogy? What's a good analogy? A description for this. And all of a sudden I started laughing, and my wife's like, What? It's like what we just said was so clear already, it doesn't need an analogy. Okay, it's, it's good as it is. So, yeah, shame on me for always over-analogizing things. But that's my teaching style. And for Jesus, his teaching style was parables. That's what he always did. And time he opened his mouth, out would come a parable. In verse 36, though, after having shared so many of these, okay, and they were t- it was to make things understandable, it was to layer additional meaning, it was to make things more memorable with everyday kind of objects, after having done that, then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. So kind of like what happened after the parable of the sower, can, can you explain that a little more to us? In this one, what which one do they really want to understand? Wheat and tares, which to me is interesting. It's like they get it, like, oh, I think that has something to do with our mission and what we might be up against. Gulp. Can you help us understand that? And so he does. In verse 37, he begins his explanation. And as you read it, Think about what we already saw in Doctrine and Covenants section 86. He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man. So, I'm, here's your cast, the most important of the cast of characters. I'm the sower of the seed. The field is the world, we knew that. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. And interesting, he would say children either way. I mean, this is a giant custody battle between rival would-be parents. And who's your daddy? You know, do you want to go with Jesus or Lucifer? Do you want to go with the church or with the world? Do you want to be a child of the kingdom or a child of the wicked one? choice is yours. He then says, the enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. The JST adds, or the destruction of the wicked. And the reapers are the angels. And the JST clarifies, or the messengers sent of heaven. Those those are those destroying angels chomping at the bit. Okay, so do we have our cast of characters down? We got it all figured out? Because if you know the people, now let's go for the plot. Verse 40 to 42. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity. The, there's a JST of that that actually clarifies the timetable. It says, For in that day, before the Son of Man shall come, he shall send forth his angels to do everything that the King James just said. Okay, gather out the kingdom, all things that offend. It's interesting, though, to th- put that in the context of the last day, right before the coming of Christ. That's when we're gathering out things that shouldn't be there and gathering in things that should. He goes on, They shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. The JST says, They shall cast them out among the wicked, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. So it's not just throw them into the fire. It's like, no, I'm sorry. You're not allowing yourself to be gathered in, so you are left out among the wicked. And without my protective hand, that's what you're in for. Well, this idea of weeping, wailing, gnashing teeth the JST also adds, for the world shall be burned with fire. And, and that's the end of this. That's what harvest time entails. I mean, how does the allegory of the olive tree end? With all of the good fruit being brought in? Well, now it's, the harvest is over and the field can be burned. That's the destruction of the wicked at the end of the world. This is eschatological, which means end times. This is final judgment that's being prophesied of. And then verse 43, the Lord adds an interesting phrase that reminds me of those last few verses of section 86. Remember when there was that strange turn and all of a sudden it was like, wait, why do we have the priesthood? And oh, well, therefore, 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 you've got to stay here so you can be a light to the Gentiles and save my people Israel. You got work to do, okay? So make a difference. Convert tares into wheat. Well, in verse 43... Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. There's the wink, wink, nudge, nudge. What am I asking you to be? Righteous. Wheat. Good ground. A growing mustard seed. Make the kind of difference you need to. Be one who shines forth as the sun. Nothing like good sunlight will change tears to wheat. And with that last line... Do you have ears? Are you hearing this? Do you understand who you are? What you're up against? What you're being called upon to do? It's actually with that in mind that I love the Lord's shift to the next two parables. It's like he paused. Now he's just talking to the apostles. The multitude has been dispersed. We're behind closed doors. Let me just talk to you and help you understand this. And then two more parables to them that come in quick succession that are almost the same story told in two different ways. Because I can picture these apostles going, whoa, tears out there. Gulp. Uh, We're up against opposition. The sunlight's going to be beating down on us in terms of persecution and tribulation and affliction. (sighs) Will it be worth it? it? Wouldn't it be easier just to let my strength slip off into tears myself? Wouldn't it be easier just to go by the way of the wayside? well, that's why you need the parable of the treasure hid in the field and the parable of the pearl of great price. Here they are. Verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath and buyeth that field. That's how valuable this is. It's going to be worth it, Peter, James, John, all, the, all the rest of you. It's going to be worth it in our day, Joseph and Brigham and Heber. It's going to be worth it for all of us to make these kinds of sacrifices. Mary and Joanna, Susanna, come. Emma, Valate, Vienna, come. It's. Do, do you have any idea what I've hidden in this field? It's a treasure. In the day before banks often what would you do? You'd kind of hide your money under your bed or you'd go bury it out in your field. And only you knew where X marked the spot. Hopefully it's safe there. But what would happen if you stumbled upon it? Maybe enough time has passed that nobody else even knows that the treasure is still there. Somehow it's been lost in the passage of time. But you know it's there and... Digging it up and taking it would be stealing because it, it belongs to the owner of the property. Well, what's your best bet then? Become the owner of the property. Now, it's going to seem fishy if you're like, I'd like to buy this two foot by two foot uh, squ- pl- pl- plot of land. Huh? No, you've got to buy the whole thing. We're not subdividing. You buy the whole piece and that to me is important to understand when it comes to understand when it comes to grappling with the humanity mingled with divinity in the church of Jesus Christ because it's made up of humans there will always be humanity in it and messiness and fallibility and mistakes the apostles themselves have admitted as much in terms of if if it was meant to be a perfect church none of us would be able to be part of it As Elder Holland joked, the Lord works through imperfect people because that's all he's got. And it must be incredibly frustrating to him, but somehow he deals with it. Well, I guess we can deal with it too. Or even things that maybe seem boring or uneventful or I'm not getting a ton out of this. It's still part of the field. And you know, even the field itself is worth something. Even those parts without the buried treasure can bring forth good fruit if you know how to dig and dung and weed and water. But what I love about this parable among other things is we'll put up with boring lessons in hopes that we're around for the one that is life-changing. We'll live the gospel even on days where it feels like I'm just plowing in an empty field in hope that the time will come where I feel the plow blade hit up against something harder. I'm, I'm just weeding, I'm hoeing the row and yet I strike something down beneath and once I pay the price to uncover it, what I see below the surface, hidden and requiring some work to arrive at, is a treasure unlike anything I've seen in any other field on earth. The restored gospel of Jesus Christ is full of things like that. It's not just a two-foot plot at the corner of the field. Oh, buried treasure is scattered everywhere. But I pray that we can endure the days of unsuccessful digging, knowing that just around the corner, is a treasure unlike anything you've seen. In fact, just around the corner is a pearl of great price. That's the second uh, second witness of this truth that it's going to be worth it, apostles. Verse 45 and 46. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls. You see, this time he's actively looking for it and he knows exactly what to look for. He's a merchant man after all. He can spot a good pearl when he sees it. He's out. This is his business. He's always been looking for the best kinds of pearls. In the other one, the treasure hid in the field. A man just happened to find it. I don't know. It was kind of dig, uh, digging up dirt clogs and clods and stumbled across something amazing. Okay? That one seemed almost accidental. This one is incredibly intentional. He's seeking goodly pearls. Who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Yeah, he's a merchant. He knows. He knows what he's just seen. If he sold all that he had to get it, chances are he had some other pearls that paled in comparison. Oh, I, I can. I'll hold on to any truth that I have. But when I find a fullness, I'll keep whatever still fits. But it's. It would be worth giving up everything else, even. Preparatory pearls, because I found the one of greatest worth. By the way, these are such beautiful parables, analogies, examples of what the gospel is, what the kingdom of heaven is. But if Christ is the King of kings, he is the King of the kingdom, is that him? Do you see in Jesus a treasure? Do you see in him a pearl of greatest price? Because flipping it around, he sees that in us. What if you're the treasure in the field? What if you're the pearl of great price? And this merchant man, who knows what he's looking for, has been seeking you. When he finds you in all your glorious, untapped potential, all these buried treasures that he wants to bring out into the light of day, Jesus gave up all he had and all he is to save us to purchase us to add us to his crown a beautiful thing we're getting near the end of these parables the apostles are you ready to go are you, are you reassured that it's going to be worth it tears and all treasure and pearls await you so come well, notice verse 47 through 50, and this is the parable of the gospel net, because this is something they'll need to understand as well. Again, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea. You picture Peter, James, John, Andrew perking up, like, Ooh, I like this one, I like this one. It gathered of every kind, which when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angel shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. The JST, by the way, had talked about the world being, or the worldly being the children of the wicked and them being cast out into the world to be burned. That's the furnace of fire. And then it ends, there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Sounds a lot like the wheat and the tares. So whether you're a farmer or a fisherman, I'll, I'll use an analogy that works for you. What, what, do you like to, what do you like to do? What are your interests? And I can somehow turn that into a good analogy. If you like flying, listen to Elder Uchtdorf, Okay, He's got some amazing lessons there. So you fishers of men realize that it's going to be a mixed multitude. You're going to have soils across the spectrum. You're going to have wheat as well as tares. You're going to have good fish and not so good fish. Just cast the net as widely as you can. Don't Prejudge. Remember, you can't tell the difference between wheat and tares yet. So just bring in everyone you possibly can. Talk to everybody. Give the world a chance to hear the good news. And in fact, I know what I said, that at the end, the angels will come and sever. There's going to be a, a complete separation of righteous and wicked. And weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth among those that were cast out rather than gathered in. But there's something else you fishermen probably already know. If it's not yet harvest time, if it's not yet the end of the world, what do you do with a fish that you don't keep? You don't cast it in. You cast, or you don't cast it out. You cast it back, back in, in hopes that it'll grow big enough to be a better catch someday down the road. That to me also suggests that patience with tares to give them time to become wheat. Let the fish grow up in God too. okay? Because until harvest time, they can change. But at harvest time, this is what will happen. Now, when all was said and done, and these parables were finished, verse 51, Jesus saith unto them, these apostles, have ye understood all these things? Which again suggests a a collection here. Do you get it all? I started with sower, ended with gospel net. Are you are you seeing the storyline unfold parable by parable? Do you understand all these things? And they say unto him, yea, Lord, which is either honest, in which case good for you, then you're ready to go sow the seed and bless the kingdom. Or perhaps was this still the embarrassment of, I don't want to look ignorant in front of other people. Well, I certainly don't want to look ignorant in front of Jesus either. So uh Yeah, y- yay, Lord. It all makes perfect sense. And I <laughs> picture Jesus trying not to smile as he knows, well, probably not yet, but hopefully someday. You know, Joseph Smith, as he was walking the saints through these parables of the kingdom, when he got to that verse, he couldn't help but join in with his fellow apostles in saying, "Yea, I do understand it. And in his case, I think he understood it way better than the ancients. He said it this way, "Yea, Lord, for these things are so plain and so glorious that every saint in the last days must respond with a hearty amen to them. And I hope we do. I hope we see ourselves as sowers and fishers, as <laughs> weeders and waterers, I hope we see ourselves as mustard seeds and and the kingdom as buried treasure and pearls of great price. I hope we see each other as fellow fish and we're willing to cast out the net and invite others to come in. Do we understand all these things? That we are living in the day of the fulfillment of these prophecies that we're alive during the climax of the storyline. It's amazing. So hearty amen from one and all. Now, verse 52, he then adds one other thing. And some have even called this another parable. I think we could, but almost as an aftermath, looking back on everything he's taught us to this point, notice 52, Then said he unto them, Therefore, every scribe, and remember, a scribe is an expert in the written word, You've said that you've understood these things. Do we really get it? I hope so. We scribes, every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven, and that's what I've been doing for you, instructing you, letting you know what the kingdom of heaven looks like, uh, giving you revelation as well as interpretation. Do, Do you get this? If you're instructed, then you're likened to a man that is an householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. And with treasure there, think about a treasury. Think about this place where you, your your safety deposit box, all these things that are there. And with the passage of time, you'll bring out old things and new things. It's like show and tell. And there's this amazing stuff that this, this householder has. Well, think about that in light of the parables Jesus has just taught. And I love this little, this little one verse message. Because if I've been instructed in the kingdom of heaven, if I get it, if I'm starting to have ears to hear, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, and I'm a scribe in terms of having these words written down on the page before me, written on the fleshy tables of my heart, then guess what will happen with time? Line upon line, precept upon precept, I will grow up in an understanding until I know the mysteries of God, until I know them in full. I will receive the greater portion of the word. And what will that allow me to do? To open up the treasury of truth that we have before us in the the gospel of Jesus Christ. And out of that treasury, I can bring forth treasures both new and old. That describes scripture study to me. Where things I've taught a million times but some old insight jumps off the page and like, I totally forgot that verse was here. That's amazing. And to dust off that old treasure is a treat. Almost as exciting as having something new emerge from a treasury. I, I didn't even know that that was in there. Where was that verse all along? Where was that insight? Where did that, when did that bush start to burn? You get this? I love this passage in light of our scripture study. And that's why it's worth it to keep going back every four years to come through gospel doctrine. and Come follow me. It's why as soon as you finish one book of scripture, just start another one and never end your study. Because this is a, a limitless treasury with things new and old coming forth. How every chance that we that, that we get such a beautiful thing. Now, verse 53 and 54, we're getting close to the end of this this chapter. In some ways, we could end it right here because the parables are over for this chapter. The way he says it in 53, It came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence. We could have ended it right there. But notice where Matthew goes from here. And we'll just say this really, really briefly. And when he was come into his own country, going back to Nazareth, he taught them in their synagogue. Ah, so he's in the Nazareth synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom, these mighty works? This might be Matthew's equivalent of that Luke account we saw earlier, where he's there in the synagogue of Nazareth and says, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. I'm the Messiah. Mic drop. Or is it something that's happening? Uh, is a later event that's similar. Hard to tell. But notice their response. It's a lot like the response of the other. So I'm kind of leaning this is the same story. But 55 through 58, it's, the, it's what we've grown accustomed to from people that are a little too close to the source to, to realize its worth. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? His brethren, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, are they not all with us? It's like, we know this guy. We know him all too well. Well, that's the problem. Thinking you know him well, you don't know him at all. They say, say, whence then hath this man all these things? Where's all this coming from? Where'd he get all this knowledge? And they were offended in him. But Jesus said unto them, a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now, like I've said, we've studied that reality several times already in the Mark and Luke versions. But the placement of it in the book of Matthew is what made me want to bring it up all over again. Because it often seems that that, that realization has to do with miracles. And they want to see things and like, where does he have the power to do this kind of stuff? And like, oh no, I judge him otherwise. This one, though, is in the context of teaching and specifically in the context of teaching parables, which I love the thought of not just somebody leading us, and do I take them seriously, but someone teaching us. Do I take them seriously too? Or do I look at them and go, this is a carpenter. Where are they going to come up with any kind of insight? Uh, This is my, my gospel doctrine teacher, Uh, doesn't know Hebrew and Greek, then how can I learn anything from them? Are, Are we keeping teachers from being able to perform mighty works through those lessons because of our unbelief? Thinking they have to have a certain academic background or they have to be at a certain intellectual level. No. Are we willing to learn from anyone? Are we letting a carpenter become a teacher? One of the things that Elder Irene said about, or President Irene said about his father, this incredibly famous, well educated scientist, he said, My dad could learn from anybody. And we'd be pumping gas, and he'd talk to the gas station attendant about gas and how it's working and how does this work. I just want, you're an expert in a field that I'm not an expert in, so teach me. And I hope that we are open to lessons from anyone. That's part of the softened heart and the, opens, the tilled soil where seeds can be planted. Now, there's one last thing that we need to do uh, in our lesson for this week, and that's study some of Luke chapter 13. That was part of our assigned material uh, from our Come, Follow Me curriculum. The book of Luke, if you follow Matthew's chronology, which is what our curriculum is typically doing, then it's going to, to make it easy in Matthew, it's going to make it harder in Luke. Sorry. And so we're going to be kind of jumping around different chapters. Uh, the, what we see in Luke 13, in his version, seems to happen later in the Savior's ministry. Uh, but what he does here, including some teaching along the lines of parables, is why it's probably included in this week's lesson uh, for Come, Follow Me. So we'll, we'll end with our, with our study of Luke chapter 13. A few more parables, as well as some other teachings. Verse 1-3 through There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. That's the first time we've heard mention of Pilate. He's going to play a starring role later on. But what's our first impression? He mingles the blood of Galileans with their sacrifices? Ah, yes. Pilate had ordered the execution of certain Jews while they were offering ritual sacrifice. Uh, that's our first hint that he does not place a really high value on human life if there's, uh, or religious freedom. If there's a chance that this is going to cause some problems, then just get rid of things and wash my hands of it. Okay? Now, this was on the news. People knew about this. And so Jesus brings this up to ask a, a theological question, a philosophical one. So some were present. They told him about this story. Did you hear what happened to the Galileans? Now, Jesus answering, said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? Interesting question. Ah, do you think they deserved it? You're giving me the news. Let me ask you a question about it. Do you think they deserved to be killed out of some kind of sinfulness on their part? Well, he answers his own question. I tell you, nay. So if that's what you were guessing, you guessed wrong. No, they weren't punished out of, because of some guilt on their part. But, he continues, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. So don't think you're better than they are just because you survived Pilate's punishments. In fact, if, that's, if they're like reeling from this, like, wait, wait, what are you trying to say here? Oh, well, let me tell you another example. Okay, if that's the first witness. Let me give you a second witness. Verse 4 and 5. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them. This must have been some other story in the news that everybody heard about because Jesus had just mentioned it in passing. Wasn't there some other story? Well, oh, we just heard about these Galileans that were that were killed. Well, there was a bunch of other people, oh, construction workers, that they were building a tower and it fell on and crushed them. Eighteen casualties, victims there. Well, what about them? Think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? If the Pilate story was up north in Galilee, well, similar stuff happens down south in Jerusalem. And again, let me answer my question. I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Now, Jesus is, these are fighting words. This is Jesus popping the bubble of their sense of superior, superiority, as he's done so many times before. Yeah, you see, here's the problem and we learned that we talked about this last year in the book of Job that if you take the promise of the Deuteronomist uh, there, the Deuteronomic theology is if you keep the commandments you prosper in the land Lehi was a good Deuteronomist it's like you do what's right and you get blessed for it you do what's wrong and you get punished for it that's how it works and that's usually the case eternally that's always the case okay? you reap what you sow But in the meantime, sometimes the wicked prosper, and in the meantime, sometimes the righteous suffer. Go ask Job about that. Remember Job's friends? Man, you're really suffering. You must have sinned. And Job, with the same mentality, but knowing more than they did, no, I haven't sinned. Therefore, I shouldn't be suffering. You see, if we assume that all sin leads to immediate suffering then we're really close to assuming that all suffering is evidence of some kind of sin we'll keep seeing that, that false philosophy pop up every now and again throughout the rest of the gospels but I love that Jesus is pushing back against that Job like and saying no 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 the righteous suffer sometimes too and sometimes people who aren't suffering may not be that righteous after all so just because you're survivors doesn't mean you're saints if you don't repent then live or die prosper or suffer in this life you will die in the next you've got to change this is a powerful call to repent especially to his jewish audience Because that's all lead up to this parable in verse 6 and 7. He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And there's lots of fig trees, lots of vineyards all around. So this is an everyday analogy for an everyday reminder of the lesson, he hopes they learn. He came and sought fruit thereon and found none. You can tell that this is a lord of the vineyard, the master of of the fig tree that wants some productivity here. I expected more than this. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, his servants, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and find none. So cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? It's just taking up space. And I'm not in the business of making ornamental gardens or or planting shade trees. No, I planted figs because I wanted to harvest figs. And I'm not harvesting anything. So yeah, cut it down. Remember his expectation. This is a God of great expectations. Just like the parable of the sower, I'm planting seeds. I want it. I'm, I'm hoping for a hundredfold. But this plant, it's just taking up space and not bearing fruit. And I've been patient. Did you notice how long he's been waiting? Three years? If you know who's speaking and the length of his ministry, does that mean anything to you? Picture Jesus running out of time and wondering about, are we already in the parable of the wheat and tares? Is it already more tares than wheat? Will anyone listen? Will anyone believe? Well, he's not done with the story. In verse 8 and 9, he answering said unto him, And that's the servant here, the dresser of the vineyard. Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well. And if not, uh, then after that, thou shalt cut it down. Again, just like the allegory of the olive tree. A prophet interceding saying, please, just a little more time. There's more that I can do. You've done all, but I'm not finished yet. Please be patient with us. And if I just keep on working, then maybe even wayside soil can become good ground. Give it time. And that's the end of the story. The end of the parable. He doesn't explain it. Maybe he doesn't need to. the apostles get it? Do the people get it? Are they up in arms of, wait, how dare you say I'm fruitless? I'm the house of Israel. Well, yeah, but good roots I'm just not seeing good fruits. And it's by their fruit that you shall know them. The Lord then does something we've seen him do repeatedly. And we had a whole lesson uh, last week, or half the, half the week's material, was on what Jesus did as Lord of the Sabbath. Well, here's another Sabbath day miracle. In Luke 13, verse 10 and 11, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. That's what his custom was, right? And behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity, Now, a spirit of infirmity is confusing. Other translations say she was crippled by an evil spirit. Or others say she had a disabling spirit about her. And it had been that way for 18 years. She was bowed together and could in no wise lift up herself. Most suggest that this woman is crippled in some way. Picture her bent over Stooped with age, and it's been getting worse and worse these 18 years, and she cannot stand up straight. In some ways, she's such an interesting parallel to other people that we've already seen Jesus heal. In a way, is she like the man with the withered hand? It's a Sabbath miracle, after all. In a way, is she like the man, the paralytic, lowered through the roof because he couldn't bring himself? Well, she can't lift herself up. But there's something about that image of an inability to straighten up or feeling so crushed under your anxious load. Is she the visual aid of someone that is laboring and is heavy laden? Even if you can't see the burden, it looks like she's still being crushed beneath one. Bowed over. Well, what is Jesus going to do on this Sabbath day? Verse 12, when Jesus saw her, he called her to him. There's always this sense of, will you come unto me? She did, and he said unto her, woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Now, unlike the man with the withered hand, remember that one? He's putting the Pharisees in a rough spot. Like, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to do anything. Because it'll look like work to you. I'll just say to this man, stretch out your hand. And he did. And he was healed. Huh, who did that? But for her, I'm going to make this obvious. And you can judge me and misjudge me however you choose. He lays hands on her and heals her. And what did the healing consist of? I love the way it's described here. She was made straight. If I can remove the heavy burden so that you can have my yoke, which is light, (laughs) it's easy. I can take the crooked and make it straight. I can take those that are bent down and lift them up. In fact, I can help you rise to your full potential. I have noticed this about myself whenever I play the piano, that I start, I sit down and start playing, and before I am even aware of it, your pianist has become the hunchback of Notre Dame. And as I am bent over and I'm playing, and I realize, for some reason, again, it's always on the piano bench, I realize what pathetic posture I have, that I just hunch over. And there are times when I've been playing too long or sometimes it'll happen when you're on your phone too long or at the computer, that happens all the time for me. I'm at the computer too long, hunching over the keyboard. And you kind of get stiff. Imagine being stiff for 18 years, right? And once I realize it, it's interesting to like bend, to just sit up straight. And you can kind of hear your vertebrae cracking and you just feel like your lungs finally expand and you're like, wow, I was really... I was doubled over. I was bent down. I I probably lost several inches. But to rise to your full stature, to fill the measure of your creation, it's, it's an interesting feeling to straighten up when you've been slouching. And that's even more true in the spiritual realm. Think hard about this. Have you ever been spiritually slouching? Have you ever, whether it's, again, tribulation, persecution, opposition, temptation, whatever. Whether you've just been cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches, whatever it is that's sapping your strength to be bowed down, but have you ever felt the spirit within you straighten up? I, I don't know how else to describe it, but something within as if your spirit is tired of being so trapped in this claustrophobic body of yours and so trapped in our diminished potential because we haven't been giving the spirit its due. But when it happens and we have a powerful experience or this wake-up call or God cries repentance and we actually listen and we straighten ourselves, you can kind of feel your spiritual vertebrae crack within you and your spiritual lungs expand. Maybe that's what Alma was getting at in his experiment upon the Word when he said, your soul will expand. I can breathe deep. The breath of life is filling me. I am reaching the measure of my creation. I am... The heavy burdens have been lifted. Again, I don't know how else to describe it, but this woman to me is such a profound embodiment of that reality. And if you haven't felt it, then pray for it. Seek the Lord to come and lay his hand on you. A Sabbath's a good day to do it. (laughs) And be made straight. No matter how crooked, no matter how bent you've ever been. Love that. Next story. And in in some ways we're seeing parallels to other miracles that he's performed. Look at verse 14 and 15 of Luke 13. And the ruler of the synagogue answered, Now, the last time we met a ruler of the synagogue, his name was Jairus, and he was awesome, right? With all kinds of faith and and come and heal my daughter, I know you can. Well, this synagogue didn't have such a righteous ruler. So the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day and said unto the people, "Ah, come on, there are six days in which men ought to work. In them, therefore, come and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day, What I love about that is it's like he's given up on correcting Jesus. Jesus is going to do what Jesus does. He's going to keep healing on the Sabbath and any person he sees, he's going to be moved with compassion and want to help them. Well, if I can't stop the supply, maybe I can stop the demand. So people, get out of here. Quit coming to this guy on, on the holy day because he's going to end up making you whole. And that... Is he working? Are you working? I don't know. Nothing's working as far as me trying to maintain the, the sanctity of the Sabbath. It's so interesting. Quit coming to Jesus. Well, 15 and 16, the Lord then answered him and said, Thou hypocrite. Come on. Hypocrite. What, are you, what mask are you hiding behind? What, you, you're, you appear to be a ruler of the synagogue? Whatever. You're trapped by your misconception of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is ruling over you when it was the Sabbath made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So what does he say to this hypocrite? Doth not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? The answer to that rhetorical question is yes, you all do. Because you care about your animals. Well, guess what? I care about the children of God. So he says, And ought not this woman being a daughter of Abraham? I see who she is. And whose she is? This daughter of Abraham, whom Satan hath bound, lo, these 18 years. I know who she is. I know what she's been going through. I know how long she's been dealing with it. Then why can't she be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Come on, ruler of the synagogue. The Sabbath is a day for loosing bonds. Lightening burdens. Lifting loads. Straightening backs. It's a day to reach our full potential. And then verse 17, when he had said these things, all his adversaries were ashamed. All the people rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. I hope I'm among the rejoicers rather than the shamed. But how we react to the blessings of God, how we react to the teachings of Jesus, will let us know a lot about which side of them we're on. If it hurts the truth that was meant to, to prick our heart, To wake us up. If it it makes us feel ashamed of what we've done to the point of godly sorrow, awakening us to a desire to change, then all the better. If, on the other hand, we rejoice at those things, well, maybe we were living them already. I hope so. Verse 18 follows, Then said he, Unto what is the kingdom of God like? And whereunto shall I resemble it? And then he teaches the parable of the mustard seed. And then 20, again he said, where shall I liken the kingdom of God? And then he teaches the parable of the leaven. Uh, so this is Luke's placement for the things that we saw back in Matthew, Matthew chapter 13. But I do love the questions that Jesus raises before he gives them. Oh, what, can I, what analogy can I draw? What picture can I paint? What story can I tell to help you see what, what you're a part of? This daughter of Abraham? You sons of Abraham. Do you get it? Do you understand the kingdom that this king of kings is trying to build? Come be a part of it. Well, some start to wonder, can everyone be a part of it? I don't know. Is is it just a select few like, like people have been assuming? Notice verse 22. He went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? That's an interesting question. Is it, how how small will this kingdom be? How selective are you? And Jesus said unto them, "Strive to enter in at the strait gate: for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able." Ah, but strive, try. What is it that's keeping them from entering? The answer comes in 25 through 27. When once the master of the house is risen up, and hath shut to the door. And ye begin to stand without, and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. By the way, does this little parable sound like another more famous parable about people that come a little late, and the door is already shut, and they're knocking desperately, please let us in. Is this, is this a trial run of the parable of the ten virgins? Oh, maybe. They're pleading, Lord, let us in, open to us, but notice his response. He shall answer and say unto you, I know not whence ye are. Then shall ye begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence. Come on, don't you remember us? Thou hast taught in our streets. I mean, we certainly remember you. But he shall say, I tell you, I know not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. Do you remember what Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? There will be those that say, Lord, Lord, But no, you just talked the talk. You didn't walk the walk. Oh, but we did this and we did that. Yeah, but did you ever come to know me in the process? An intimate, experiential knowledge? Or just lip service? Or just name recognition? No, you don't know me and I don't know you. I don't understand where you're coming from or where you intend to go. So, sadly, the result of all that, verse 28, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and those daughters of Abraham that I just helped and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. Oh, It's so interesting. They must have been forcing their way in, right? Thinking they were entitled to enter because now they're being thrust out. They're thrusting themselves in. No, I'm there. I'm supposed to be there. I've got his name on me. I'm a card-carrying member of the house of Israel. No, you're being thrust out because you don't know the king of Israel himself. He doesn't know you. But now that we have space here, since some of the insiders have now been cast out, I guess now we can bring some of the outsiders and bring them in. They shall come from the east, and from the west, and from the north, and from the south, all those outside the borders of Israel, and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are last which shall be first, and there are first which shall be last. How's that for one of those Lucan role reversals (laughs) that were one of Luke's favorite things? You see, to you members of the house of Israel, there is not an aristocracy of membership. It's more like a meritocracy of grace. And I say of grace because it's not your merits alone that are doing this. It's the grace of God that you are opening yourself to and receiving. And that is what's making all the difference. My wife and kids and I, we we, we love the NBA and sports in general, but... Uh, We watch NBA games on TV and there was one, I can't remember what station it was on, but there was a commercial that kept coming up. I I I haven't seen it in a season or two, but we would laugh about it because it was always about like how to get tickets to games. And it was, it showed somebody they're watching on TV and they see a friend of theirs or they, I can't remember exactly the details. Anyway, the line of it is all, how do he get tickets to the game or how'd they get tickets to the game? And whenever we see other people having fun that we aren't having, that we aren't having, we, we console ourselves by bringing up that, that line from the, the TV commercial. And we'll just start laughing We're like, how'd they get tickets to the game? Uh, and then we'll laugh and we'll go do something else for fun ourselves. But you get this sense here of people that are supposed to be on the in are now on the out. The first to become last and the last to become first and they're the ones looking in the window when they thought they were entitled to space indoors. And I picture them looking in at Gentiles? That, that person, looked, they came from the west and oh the east and oh north, oh south. How'd they get tickets to the game? Well, because the face of the franchise gave them his own seats. Come in. All ye that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Come in, outsiders, because my arms of mercy are extended to you all. No man is prophet in his own country. Well, to those that are from outside my country, I'm a prophet to them. And they know me, and I know them. We go way back. There's something powerful here going on. The seed is being sown. The plants are growing. Who's coming in? What soil are you on? Fascinating. And then the chapter ends in kind of a strange way. Thirty-one through thirty-three. The same day, there came certain of the Pharisees. Now, with that, we probably, oh, a pit in our stomach, and we're like, we get the dukes up, like, oh, oh, here comes trouble. But actually, these ones are pretty good. They said unto Jesus, "Get thee out." and depart hence for Herod will kill thee you wonder are they looking out for Jesus are they worried that all these followers coming it's it's creating some commotion and we we can't have are they trying to protect Jesus are they trying to protect themselves eh, they're pharisees so maybe more the second than the first but either way please leave or you're you're going to be in trouble now Jesus's response is really interesting and in some ways it will fit better when we get to this point in the Matthew and Mark chronology. It fits well in the Luke chronology because as soon as he says this, he'll then begin lamenting over Jerusalem like it's his last time there. Uh, This is the equivalent of Matthew 23. So we're still like 10 chapters away from that in the Matthew chronology. So this is a little out of place for what we've been talking about today. But notice what he says here. And this will be our foreboding well preview preview of coming attractions here's some foreshadowing he says to them go ye and tell that fox which is interesting that he would mm, strong language how does jesus feel about herod now that's either he's calling him that derogatory term or the greek word for fox can also just be met like foxy in terms of cunning and crafty so you tell that cunning man that that crafty kind of liar in wait, you tell that fox, behold, I cast out devils and I do cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I shall be perfected. Now think about those three days he's talking about. There's something about today. What am I doing? I'm casting out devils. I wish I could cast you out, you devil fox you. Uh, I'm doing cures. I'm... I'm being the meek Messiah I came to earth to be. That's my labor for today. It's my labor for tomorrow, the immediate future. But the third day, and when you think about Jesus and the third days, when you think about Jesus and the three years he's been waiting on this fig tree to flourish, what's going to happen on the third day? Well, I'll be perfected. I won't be here. Herod won't have me to worry about anymore. That's what happens on my third day. And then he repeats it. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow. And the day following? You wonder if he pauses here and swallows hard and musters his courage. What will happen on the day following? What will my third day entail? He says it. He hints at it. For it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. That's where prophets go to die. And that's where I'm headed. Jesus knows the road that he's on. But he walks it courageously. And again, that's where we see this. The Olivet Discourse, the weeping over Jerusalem, the signs of the times, the triumphal triumphal entry. In in Luke 13, we're really close. In Matthew 13, thankfully, we still have a lot of great scripture to study, with more treasures, new and old, to bring forth out of the treasury. But as we wrap up this week's lesson, Jesus knows where his whole ministry is going to wrap up. And it's in a garden, and on a cross, and in a tomb and yet out of the tomb for the kingdom of heaven to continue rolling forth. That's what these parables have been all about this week. And thy kingdom come. It has and it is, and it will yet. And we get to be a part of it. My prayer for all of us is that we will heed the word and understand it And believe it to the point that we will begin drilling ever deeper to find living water and uprooting things that are distracting us from what matters most I pray my friends that we see ourselves in these stories that we understand what it is that the Lord has been teaching us that we're tilling our soil and that we're weeding our garden that we are pleading with tares to become more wheat-like, that we are nourishing the mustard seed and making this growing tree ever more welcoming to any bird that wants to perch on its branches. I pray that we are recognizing treasures in this field and are willing to give up anything that we need to to lay hold of the pearl of great price. I am grateful for Jesus Christ and the stories he tells and invites us into. He is the treasurer. And as we continue to learn from him, we will gain insight and inspiration to guide us through this journey. Things both new and old.